And good morning, everyone, or good afternoon, or good evening, whichever the case may be on this rotating globe. Welcome to another edition of The Other Side of Midnight, that magical time between dusk and dawn, when certainly on this show, almost anything can and often does happen. Welcome, everyone. Um, we got a really extraordinary show tonight. I've been waiting to do this for weeks. We planned this some time ago, and all kinds of gremlins, including Mercury Retrograde, have gotten in between in, in the way. Uh, our guest, our primary guest, Chandra Wickrama Singh, Dr. Wickrama Singh, who is probably one of the world's eminent astrobiologists among many other talents, is in Sri Lanka. So he's literally halfway around the planet, and we'll be bringing him in shortly. Um, it's a different time zone. It's actually much later uh, in the morning there, about 9.30, I think, as opposed to his normal time of 4 a.m. when from England he has to join the show. Uh, before we get to Chandra, and we also have uh, uh, Ra Cataldo with us in the third hour, and he's going to bring some very interesting original research. We're going to find out how he and Chandra met and have decided to work together. And then I have some surprises for both of them. So we will wait, you know, a couple hours until we get to that. Let me start with some news. There's all kinds of news in the mainstream, most of which is really kind of noise. You know, if I if I see one more story about Trump trials, I'm going to scream. Ah, there's so much else going on on the planet, but our media is fixated by well, actually, it's something which is very historic in that you cannot, you know, try a president, an ex-president, uh, on uh, four indictments with 91 counts without it being just a tad historic. So remember the maxim of this show is everything, everywhere, all at once. So it's all hitting the fan simultaneously. But apart from that, rather boring and, you know, teeth grating, nail scratching on a blackboard, ordinary stupid news. Um, you need to think about the other things going on. And the major news of this week was that after months and months, literally to a, a, a year uh, or more, um, the, uh, the, the National Aeronautics and Space Administration finally completed through an independent panel, not technically part of the agency, except by this contract, uh, their report on un unidentified anomalous phenomena. Now, you know that about two or three months ago, we had a preliminary preview of their report, and they really made news in one section of their four-hour-long video which is available on the other side of midnight. I'm not sure exactly where, but uh, it's there. But this is much, much shorter. This is a written document. It's a PDF file. It's my second item for tonight. We're going to kind of segue into it in a moment here. And what I find really interesting is what it says, what it doesn't say, and what it says in very Emily Dickinson fashion between the lines. For one thing, it's uh, incredibly symbolic. The report is 33 
tetrahedral pages long. Not 31, not 35, 34, 33. And on page 33 is what we would call in old Hitchcock parlance, the MacGuffin, the thing we were looking for. So we'll get to that momentarily. So for those of you who are new to the show, you want to go to the other side of midnight.com. That's our URL. That's our homepage. Click on that. That will take you to the homepage. And at the very top, you will see a very brilliant banner, which is one of Webb's latest stunning images. And the title says, The Webb Telescope's First Year and Astonishing Discoveries. Well, we're going to talk about the discoveries tonight with Dr. Wickrama Singh. And as I said, in the third hour, we're going to bring in one of his colleagues, Ra Castaldo, and he will uh, add another overtone to the conversation. And as I said, we will be talking about some discoveries we have made independently that seem to correlate quite nicely with what Ra has totally independently discovered. But we'll get to that, as I said, in a couple of hours. In the meantime, you're now on the what we call the guest page. Click on uh, uh, the homepage banner, and that takes you to the guest page. Under the guest page, it says fast links to items. When you see the banner again, just kind of scroll down. And you click on my name, Richard, and there we are, my items and radio with pictures uh, for tonight. Item number one, this is a Reuters story on the um, uh, report by the NASA independent panel on unidentified anomalous phenomena. Remember, originally it was unidentified aerial phenomenon, and then they changed it, which of course is really interesting because you can put everything and the kitchen sink under the rubric anomalous. I mean, science in and of itself is built to is crafted to, is designed to examine anomalies and try to figure them out and try to predict the next data point, the next anomalies in a chain of them. And that's really the only way in our 3D universe that we know the world. If you read that story, you'll see that they go through the fact that, you know, they've been set up in connection with the Pentagon's so-called ARROW program, which is their unidentified anomalous phenomenon, and they are kind of working hand in glove. Um, Everything was going fine until uh, last, I think it was Thursday, when the NASA administrator held an hour-long press conference with some of the key people in the unidentified anomalous phenomena group, this independent study including his um, uh, one of his deputy secretaries uh, or deputy directors at headquarters. And a reporter, I think it was the Reuters reporter, said very, very, you know, innocently and obviously the, the right question, well, who is the new director of the Office of Unidentified Anomalous Phenomenon? And to my surprise and to the reporter's surprise, The director and the uh, head of the science division of NASA both said, well, we can't tell you. And I looked at the TV screen and I went, what? And, you know, another reporter tried and they said, no, we we, we can't tell you. Now, I've got to say I have been a part of NASA. I've been a consultant. I've been a paid employee. That's what consultancies are. 
I have covered NASA both inside and outside of CBS for decades. I even had a very small part in the actual Apollo program, and I've told that story on other shows, and you can just go back and, uh, you know, look at some of the transcripts or, you know, listen to the shows. This is the first time I've ever seen the head of an official government agency say to the press, well, we have the head of a new department, but we can't tell you who it is. I mean, this went over like the proverbial lead balloon. And sure enough, uh, a few hours later, and that's where this story comes in, my item number one, NASA was forced, and I'm sure it's because all the lawyers you know, committed Harry Carey and Administrator Nelson's outer office, and after he climbed over all the dead bodies, he realized, whoops, I could not do that. It's against federal law because of accountability acts and a whole bunch of other stuff about, you know, um, citizens, accountability, hearings, public record, congressional testimony, et cetera, et cetera. You can't, as a federal agency, not tell the people who's running what. It's by law. You have to tell them. And I don't know whether they got, as the phrase goes, kind of ahead of their skis or they were trying to tell us something in a very Emily Dickinson fashion, like between the lines, but tell it slant. But the idea that the administrator and then the director of science at headquarters would basically tell the press, you know, go pound sand when it came to the director of this incredibly high visibility, incredibly controversial office which, let's face it, is looking into UFOs with science, with serious science, as Nelson said, not the speculation. The fact that when they were asked point blank, well, who's the new director? Who's the guy in charge? And they refused to name him. It was like either you're really, really, really dumb in the ways of Washington, which, of course, both these individuals are not, or, as I used to say in Hollywood, if you have a problem, hang a lantern on it. And I think what they were very cleverly doing is hanging a lantern. So there'd be a lot of conversation behind the scenes as to, well, why won't they really tell us who the damn director is? <clears throat> because it turns out, and you can look up his name in the uh, first news item there, number one, that he is a liaison between NASA and the Pentagon of many, many years. So he's a military guy. Now, remember what I've been saying for years based on the actual evidence of the NASA charter enacted by the Congress back in 1958 after the president decided to create a so-called civilian space agency. If you read the NASA charter, it turns out that NASA is not, I repeat, NASA under law is not an independent civilian space agency. That's the propaganda. That's the spin. That's the branding. That's everything except the truth. The truth is, it says in the charter that NASA can release nothing to the press, to the public, to the world, to newspapers, television networks, social media, whatever without the concurrence of the Department of Defense to ensure that no information 
relevant to national security is declassified by NASA unless there is high-level security department intervention. So what, by, by, by not telling everybody who the department chairman was, the director of this NASA Office of Unidentified Anomalous Phenomenon at uh, NASA headquarters, by making the press go, what?, and start making phone calls and sending tweets and you know text messages and all this by cr- creating a minor firestorm around why aren't they telling us what in fact Nelson and company were doing is underlining that this office is really under the Department of Defense, which of course in a world of truth is what people who have not read the NASA charter for a very long time if ever, needed to be reminded of or have folks like us remind them that this whole thing was completely superfluous. All he should have said is it's so-and-so, Mark, what's his name, Isenbrooker, I think that's his last name. Anyway, the point is by making a big deal, it hung a lantern on it and it made seasoned veterans of the whole NASA military establishment relationship go, ah, so, in fact, there will be Pentagon censoring of any information that is deemed not worthy of public attention because of national security, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So, with that out of the way, that's, that's item number one. By the way, do you notice that the picture that illustrates the Reuters um, story is of the huge NASA what they call the meatball, the uh, blue circle with the chevron and the orbit and NASA written in white across it. And they're in the process in this photo, which is taken of the emblem on the side of the vehicle assembly building down at Cape Canaveral. Um, You'll see that they are repainting in this image the NASA logo on the side of the VAB which is metaphorically kind of interesting and appropriate to the subject because in essence, what NASA is trying to do, per again statements by the administrator, by launching this office into UFOs, i.e. unidentified anomalous phenomena, they are in essence trying to repaint or rebrand or upgrade the NASA logo and transfer that upgraded branding to the subject of UFOs themselves. It's all very multi-layered and very, very Emily Dickinson. So item number two, this is the actual report, okay? And you just click on it. It will take you to the actual PDF. Let me get rid of something on my screen. And if you look at it, um, opening and closing the report is a a beautiful color picture of the earth. And apparently they are both images taken by an unmanned test back during the 1960s, the late 60s, 67, I think, Apollo 4, of the um, Apollo stack. Everything, you know, the Saturn V rocket, the Apollo command module, the service module, the only thing that didn't have, you know, included in that flight unmanned again, a test flight was the lunar module. 
but they chose for some reason to illustrate this PDF, the Unidentified Anomalous Phenomena Independent Study Team Report to the administrator. They chose to illustrate it front and back with a photograph, two photographs of the Earth taken from the unmanned pretest of the Apollo vehicle itself, which years later, two years later, in July of 69, would land two human beings, Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin, on the surface of the moon at the uh, Sea of Tranquility. Why did they pick those two photographs? Why not something more emblematic of unidentified anomalous phenomena? Like, there's all kinds of incredible stills of unidentified things flitting around in the Earth's atmosphere that they could have used. But it's almost like they wanted something so generic, so, for a lot of people, boring at this point, like one more picture of the Earth from space. Come on. But I have a feeling it might be deeper. So in my copious spare time between now and next weekend, I will have dug into the dates when Apollo 4 flew and if those dates are in any way connected to a uh, deeper level, more interesting symbology. Other than that was the flight which I somehow got invited back when NASA was talking to me, formally invited to attend at Cape Canaveral that uh, November launch of the unmanned full-up Apollo stack, as they called it, rocket, spacecraft, etc. And um, thereby hangs another tale. This was, you know, way, way back when in history. Why they picked those two photographs, I do not know. But once you get into it, you know, there's a table of contents. There's an executive summary. There's close-ups of red sprites, which are incredibly high voltage um, things going on in the stratosphere above major thunderstorms. Um, there are bullet points. There are um, uh, visions of uh, Aurora Borealis. There's a forward. There's a beautiful view of a meteor striking uh, the Earth's atmosphere with the Milky Way in the background and off to the right. That's the Andromeda Galaxy, M31 which is 2 million plus light years away. There's an introduction. There's a weather balloon. Um, there's some blurry photographs of South Asian object image one. Footage taken by an MQ-9, whatever that is, of an unidentified object in South Asia with an apparent atmospheric wake or cavitation later assessed, doesn't say by whom, um, well, it's proud of the DOD because uh, the appearance of DOD uh, visual information, it says in small print, does not imply or constitute DOD endorsement. So even in this NASA study report, when the study reproduces a photograph taken and analyzed by the DOD, in bureaucraties, the DOD is saying, but we don't take any you know, appearance here as an endorsement of NASA, et cetera, et cetera. Anyway, you scroll all the way on down. Down, 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 down. I'm belaboring this for a point, okay? You scroll all the way on down. And the MacGuffin, to use a Hitchcock term, on page, note this, on page 33, under observations beyond Earth's 
atmosphere. Remember, they're looking for unidentified aerial slash anomalous phenomena, which means UFOs cavorting around in Earth's atmosphere. However, on this page 33, there is this paragraph, which is literally the second paragraph to the end of the document. It says, currently planned or existing NASA missions can widen their scope to include searching for extraterrestrial techno-signatures in planetary atmospheres, on planetary surfaces, or in near-Earth space. These searches generally wouldn't require changes in hardware or data acquisition, but may simply require new directions in data analysis. And that's the MacGuffin, because what they're saying there, let me translate, is, and we're also going to, as part of this study, look for alien ruins on nearby planetary surfaces, including the moon. Ding, 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 ding. That is their doorway to verifying if UFOs won't cooperate, that there are, in fact, extraterrestrial techno-signatures. Don't you love that term, techno-signatures on planetary surfaces? In other words, it's the same thing that one of the uh, scientists at the uh, four-hour briefing said, you know, months ago, that is now scientifically plausible to look for extraterrestrial civilizations leaving marks, ruins, remains, debris, stuff, machines, whatever, on other planetary surfaces or even in space all across the solar system. That means that there is now an official bureaucratic office which will allow us to submit our incredibly copious detailed research going back decades which show that on NASA data, on NASA's own calibrated data, there is in fact evidence of extraterrestrials all over the solar system and that it can be approached, it can actually be, um, shall we say, examined without NASA really changing anything from their data analysis, which is spacecraft orbiting or on the surface of other planets, or in terms of their data analysis. In other words, they have set it up so that the next step will be to provide actual proof of signatures, techno-signatures, on other planets. I have said for literally now decades that the way to open the extraterrestrial intelligence doorway is not through spacecraft zipping around or pretending not to land on the White House lawn, but in fact the safe way, the Brookings way, the way that will disturb the least number of people first would be if we found, the human race found, ruins. Not live guys, not live aliens, not bug-eyed monsters, not creatures from the Black Lagoon, you know, carrying ray guns and incinerating everybody in sight, but good old dead sterile ruins, which has the advantage of A, it proves that extraterrestrials exist, 
And if there's one set of ruins, there'll be more. And behind the ruins, there was somebody at some point in time who built the ruins, but they may not be present now, which means you create a window of, of um, decompression, political, psychological decompression. So people kind of gently get the idea that, oh, there could be somebody out there. And if there are ruins built by someone a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away, cribbing madly, then maybe the next step that they could be coming here now is logical, is testable, and all we have to do is examine the UAP phenomena, and we will find out if, in fact, any of these things flitting around are, in fact, current, bona fide, extraterrestrial spacecraft carrying extraterrestrials. See how all that fits together? And in this document, in this study, as I predicted, you know, months ago when the uh, preliminary uh, hearing, the four-hour hearing took place, I said they're going to set up an office, create a bureaucratic file and study and, you know, um, employees to begin to handle from outside of NASA and maybe outside of academia, although there are some scientists like Avi Loeb who are dying to jump in with, uh, you know, data to have NASA obviously analyze. But this is the stall, as my grandmother would have said, where whereby we can enter. But of course, you can't enter the office unless you know who the director is. And after some teeth pulling and and hair pulling and all that, uh, that came out on a Thursday afternoon after a great deal of weird, you know, well, we can't tell you who the office is run by, which, of course, makes zero sense either politically or legally. Okay, we are waiting to uh, connect with Chandra, who is, as I said this morning, is in Sri Lanka. Uh, I'm not seeing a uh, high sign as to whether we've got any joy on getting uh, uh, him on the line. Um, if we don't, what I'm going to do is go to our other guest, who is Ra Cataldo, and we'll have him kind of give you a background. And then, of course, he will tell us how he and Dr. Wickrama Singh met and how they have decided to collaborate in some rather remarkable far out uh, research. And I think we do have Chandra now part of the conversation. I'm looking at my screen. Everybody, of course, looks at screens these days. So let me continue with my items. If you look at item number three, uh, after the NASA study itself, item number three is a news story which came out of, of the Nexus um, uh, um, news filter, which is kind of like a, uh, a wire service, except for very unusual stories. It's not AP. It's it's basically run, I believe, out of Australia, uh, the Nexus magazine, which is a very well-known magazine in um, anomalous phenomenon. And um, so we are still working on Chandra. I'm reading what's being typed to me. So in the meantime, look at item number three. This came out just a few days ago. Um, it turns out now that the Webb telescope, this extraordinary, incredibly complicated instrument that against all odds was, um, was actually launched 
sent to its L2 orbital station about a million miles behind the Earth as seen from the sun and has now been functioning for over a year with exquisite perfection, precision, reliability. There have been a couple of little tiny hiccups, but they haven't amounted to anything. Anyway, uh, that's the subject of item number three. And given the fact that we are now literally at the bottom of the hour, let me do this, and then we will be back. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We're trying to get Dr. Wickrama Singh on the line. We've got Rock Taldo on the line. And depending upon how the switches flip, we will talk to one or the other when we return. Don't touch that dial. Welcome back, everyone, on this Sunday night, September 17th. There's something about the 17th of September. Ah, I can't think of it right now. Anyway, we're still working on trying to connect with Dr. Vikrama Singh, as I said, halfway around the planet in Sri Lanka. Isn't it amazing that we can do this at all? And sometimes if there are hiccups, well, sometimes there are hiccups. So I'll tell you what, let me, let me do this. Let me... Uh, give you the background on Rock Taldo, and we can just kind of swing into uh, how uh, he got to know um, uh, Chandra and how they wound up working together. So let me do this, and then I will do this. Okay. Um, Ralph Anthony Castaldo, also known as Ra, uh, is a, um, well, he's a born intuitive. And I think you've been familiar with some of that from uh, um, uh, Jonathan Womack. Um, he is a call bearer, a musician, an artist, and basically a Renaissance man, or as we call him around here, a generalist. From a lineage with deep ancestral history going back hundreds of years in the Mediterranean, connected to preserving stellar mysteries, in August 1987, Ra had an NDE which seemed to amplify his already natural-born hypersensitivity in a whole new way and opening up his psyche or whatever to harmonic frequencies, as he terms it, and vibrations that he could not actually understand at first. He's currently an artist, a musician, an author. He's a researcher and even creates his own copper healing products He's also a dedicated father, a martial arts coach, and even a remote viewer who has had much to share and will share with us tonight. His website, themysticalspiralstore.com, features his copper healing products and crystals. And as you can probably hear, his professional life kind of parallels that of another of our famous and regular guests, David Sarita, who has somewhat of a similar overlapping background. So, while we're waiting to connect with uh, Chandra, Ra Castaldo, you're on the air. Come on down. 
Well, the price is right. Thank you for having me here. <laughs> oh. Okay, let me let me go way way to be back. back. You know, that was well, thank you very much for being here. Uh while we're waiting for Chandra and electronics can be fickle, how did you wind up doing the things that brought you to Chandra's attention and then ultimately got you collaborating with one of the world's most famous and most uh real uh, astrobiologist that I can imagine. Uh, yeah, you're, you're right. And, and, and in fact, it, it just happened sort of like uh, the universe just made it happen that way. And, I'll, 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 and it's not like some magical story to it, It's but there is uh, an interesting background. Well, first, Professor Chandra, like, like yourself, is one of the most uh, respected men in the world for me and, and many other people that's into astrobiology, cosmology, astronomy. And I first knew about him in the 80s when I was a young boy. My mom would bring me to the library, and I just gravitated towards um, Fred Hoyle and uh, Professor Chandra's books right away as soon as I found them, you know, Diseases in Space and and, um, and things like that. I think it was Evolution in Space, Diseases. There was certain books that uh, it just blew my mind back then. So I already knew about Professor Chandra long before I ever – met him and then um you know i like you like you previously mentioned i come from a lineage that has hereditary mysticism going back in italy and i'm actually a reverend in a line that goes all the way back to giordano bruno it's called oh my our god lady and, yes our lady and lord of the tridacrian rose and my godmother my spiritual mother uh lori bruno who's actually in her 80s now she actually worked for nasa as well richard um she was an intern as a technical illustrator in the early 1960s when she was right out of high school. And um, so she she actually is a world-renowned psychic. She had a, a store in Salem, Massachusetts for many, many years. She just recently kind of retired with that. But um, she has written books about Giordano Bruno and, and things like that. And For those who have Sean- kind of you know dropped out of high school, <laughs> and there's a few yeah. of those. Who the heck was Giordano Bruno, and why should we be talking about him? Well, Giordano Bruno is someone that Professor Chandra has wrote about a lot as well. And then we had a mutual friend as one of Professor Chandra's assistants from India or Sri Lanka. And um, we just ended up getting in communication with each other. And, you know, his assistant had showed him some of my work and about my lineage and things like that. And then I ended up interviewing Professor Chandra. We hit it off. And I, I must have interviewed him at least six or seven times over the years. And we've always stayed in touch and shared research with each other. And he's sort of been um, um, not just a colleague, but a friend of mine that I've always respected. And, and I've always said that if I ever could have like two people to dinner one night, it would have been Fred Hoyle and, and Professor Chandra, you know, just to. Oh, that would uh, have been one heck of a dinner. Wow. Right. Did you ever read uh, Fred Hoyle's The Black Cloud? No, I Oh my god, you have a treat in store for you. Black Cloud. I don't have the Black Cloud one. Fred Cloud Fred, Fred Hoyle, who was a brilliant astrophysicist of the 1950s, uh and Chandra's talked about him, you know, mucho times. Uh was one of the world's leading astrophysicists both in uh stellar astrophysics, how do stars shine, as well as cosmology, you know, is the universe closed, open, is it a big bang? Is it a steady state? All these terms came from that era. Yeah. Well, in his spare time, like when did Fred Hoyle have spare time? He turned out to be one hell of a good science fiction writer. 
And he wrote this brilliant novel about an interstellar being, an interstellar cloud that turned out, after much of the story had gone by, to be intelligent. And it's so interesting to see the parallel between uh, his work and Chandra's in terms of interstellar dust containing biological, you know, uh, creatures, organisms, microbes, little, you know, bitty guys that are somehow kept alive in some kind of a suspended animation in the cold of interstellar space. And when they arrive on a planet, if it's suitable, they land, they come down through the atmosphere gently, they populate the seas, the oceans, etc., and life springs forth. So what Chandra and Fred did together was to open the door to the idea that if you look at any particular planetary environment, like the Earth, like the astrobiologists have been doing for decades and decades and decades, going back to a guy named Stanley Miller, um, they are looking at a non-planetary origin for life in an infinite universe because uh, uh, Fred did not believe in the Big Bang idea that the universe you know, had a moment and blossomed and everything came into being. In fact, he looked at the... Um, a Big Bang, in fact, he coined the term Big Bang as a kind of a derogatory uh, BBC conversational point where he was derisive of the idea that the universe is anything but infinite, both in time and space, and that whatever cycles we see are occurring within an infinite universe. So you can have bang, 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 separated by billions of years, but it's not really the creation of the universe. It's the recycling of our portion in ways that are currently not understood by astrophysics. So the idea that Hoyle would, in his spare time, become this really interesting sci-fi writer. And you've got to get this book somewhere, library, internet, whatever. It's called The Black Cloud, and it, it contains some really interesting novel ideas, even novel back in the 1950s, and it's still novel, even now. Because I don't think Chandra has gone as far as to say that any of the interstellar life that he is, you know, detected with instrumentation is in fact at the level of intelligence. It seems to be all pervasive as bacteria in some frozen suspended animation form waiting to drop into an appropriate... um, uh, Petri dish. Yeah, I think, well, if you follow where the bacteria is being sent from, that's where you got the alien life because I truly don't think that anything in the universe is being just sent randomly. They're under divine guidance, in my opinion. They're on mathematical orbits, comets, and, you know, mostly. Yeah, wait, 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 wait. Mathematical is not the same as intelligent. So we may have a really interesting. Uh, conversation later in the morning about that because I am of the totally opposite idea that there is not a pervasive intelligence guiding anything. In fact, it's all about frequencies and harmonics and and overtones and undertones. And ultimately, if you let harmonics run wild long enough, you get every possible harmonic and chord and overtone. You just need enough time. And given that we have an infinite amount of time, that in itself is kind of what's, you know, minding the store, at least in terms of 
my model. Well, that is an intelligence. No, it isn't. It's frequencies, intelligence, and we're going to have – by the way, uh, let me make a little announcement. You know, guys, that I've been looking for someone to talk authoritatively and intelligently and, and understandably about AI. We have found that person. And the night of the 30th, which is two Saturdays from last night, he will be on the other side of midnight. And boy, do we have a huge range of really, really interesting and deep questions to pose this individual. Um, I will probably announce who it is next Saturday uh, after I've, we had a chance to talk. He wants to uh, talk by phone, and I'm going to, obviously, because obviously we only have three hours. So I have to kind of limit some of my questions, which will you know, beguile us with other questions, and they will lead to other questions and all that. But the idea that in you know you can create an artificial mathematical intelligence that's going to be one of the core things we're going to explore and discuss and maybe argue about. So you might want to hold off any final thoughts, Ra, until you hear that show. And in fact, um, anyway, so let's just kind of no, not- no, I I understand exactly what you're saying. I just I have a different spiritual way of looking at it. I have a scientific way of looking at it. <laughs> well, you, well, you see, that's the problem nowadays. Because no, it isn't. In the past, so listen, one second. In the past, thousands of years ago, before there was a division and there was a problem with it all, spirituality and science were fused together and they were one and the same. And that's the whole reason why people can't understand the ancient writings nowadays is because they put on a cap of either science or spirituality when in the past they were fused together. And once you realize that, you can understand what they're saying in this in the ancient writings is advanced plasma astrophysics, bacterial genetics, um, and all sorts of uh, uh, sciences, but they're saying it in a spiritual way, a very spiritual way. And if you if you would give me the chance to explain <laughs> why you had me here tonight, I'd, I'd very be well. We're that. we're we're going to get into that as we move through the morning. Uh, let me ask Keith: Are we having any joy on Chandra? You can speak up. Your voice is well known. Oh no, so no joy on Chandra. Well, this could turn out very strange. Okay. So anyway, um, how did you guys, you and Chandrawick Ramasinghe, how did your paths cross? What was the actual occasional event that brought you two together? Well, that's, that's, it wasn't like, an, abs, abs, like an, an event, actually. But it's interesting because I start to get, like, I guess you can say it's just an inner, inner or telepathic. I'll get the imprint of someone's face. It'll come in when... I'm sometimes laying in bed at night and I'm not thinking about nothing or sometimes when I'm being creative and time just disappears for a little while. Like say, say you're writing a, or even reading a book. You could be painting, writing a song, whatever you do. And the next thing you know, it's like you're, you're, you're sitting there and three hours just disappear. Like you were just, you know, time just disappeared and you're getting lost in your work. When certain things like that happens, sometimes like a face will come to me, things like that. That was happening with me, with Professor Chandra, right before the very first time we actually met. Well, wait, wait, wait. You you were aware of his work before, right? How? Yeah, I was aware of his work before, but we have never spoken. But, but, But how did you know about his work and Hoyle and all that? Oh, my mom brought me to the library when I was a child. Okay. And I I happened to see one of his books. 
uh, Diseases in Space, I think it was. Right. And uh, yeah, and that was the first time I found out about Sir Fred Hoyle and Professor Chandra. So, I mean, it's a big planet, 7 billion plus people. Yeah. How did you wind yeah. up meeting him? Well, it's uh, through his assistant. That's how we ended up, uh, you know, we had a mutual friend and we, I was sharing the work with that and then asked me if, you know, Professor Chandra would like you. Maybe he'd like to interview. I was like, I would love to interview him. So we ended up communicating that way and I started to share some of my work with him. And then after I interviewed him, then we really started to connect because, uh, you know, the interview I did, the kind of questions that I asked, I think he was really impressed with, with the type of information that I was talking about. And, uh, you know, I come across as sometimes I, I look a y- lot younger than I am as well. So I think he, he was a little taken back with some of the <laughs> some of the information and the questions. Good you know? genes, good genes. Okay. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, and, and, and it just uh, since then, we've we've always stayed in contact and, and shared our work. And, and um, I think since I've been he's been in my life and I've been doing interviews like a couple of times a year with him, uh, things have been just happening when I go out in nature. Um, it just seems to be in tune with what I'm researching, like a certain a certain thing will come to me while a, a hawk will appear or a woodpecker or something like this. And it, and it seems to be that certain people get put in my life that help to activate certain information. And so so we, it's kind of like what we would call serendipity. You're not yeah. looking for something, but something kind of shows up and leads you in another path, another direction. Yeah, I think I think sometimes some of the answers that we're looking for in life, we already have and we're 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 sort of blind to it. Like some of the some of the things that we 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 we're, we're always searching for things in life, money, this and that, but we already have everything we already need. The information's already inside of us and sometimes we need someone else or something in our life just to give the right little switch, just to give the right little motivation. Well, you know why that's so interesting because serendipity which is what you're describing is the process, finding something you're not consciously looking for. Yeah. Tonight, Chandra is in the kingdom of serendip. Because Sri Lanka yeah. used to be the kingdom of serendipity. That's where the name wow. comes from. Wow, and that, of course, neither one of us were thinking about until you uttered those three or four phrases, which is a quintessential example of serendipity. That's, that's very interesting. That's, that's good that you put that together like that. That's what this show is cool. supposed to do. That's why we're here. That's why we do. I like that. You know, this show is not replicated by anybody else on the air. I guarantee you. And, guarantee and you. Know, what's, what's so amazing too about Professor Chandra is that what what some of what, of course, not everything, of course, the steady state theory of, of Fred Hoyle, but he was thinking outside the box. But a lot of what they've said still holds true 40 years later. Like what? And, Be like, specific. Uh, about comets uh, carrying the evolution and the seeds of life. Right. You know, all of that panspermia, all the, I mean, we're finding out most of this is now is true. And, um, you know, there's a lot of things that they wrote about with bacteria, even certain diseases possibly being traveled through the cosmos, like the whooping cough Professor Chandra has written about, you know, the cycle of it coming around with certain meteor showers, things like that. Very important work that, that, it, that still hasn't been disproven all these years later. So there's a lot of important work that they that it's still holding true all these years later that uh, Professor Chandra was – I think he even coined the term astrobiology, him and Sir Fred mm. Hoyle, if I'm not mistaken. Google is your friend. 
<laughs> hey, you guys could probably figure that out. I mean, I I, I didn't Google it, but I'm pretty I'm pretty sure I've 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 interviewed him before and and said that. But you know what I've come to find is that literally no, there's nothing new under the sun. I'm not. Well, you know really what's so dis- bizarre is that the mainstream is so damn stubborn sometimes, and I don't know whether to attribute that to just stupidity and ignorance and you know bullheadedness and inertia where you don't uh, uh, you know admit a new idea until it's absolutely overwhelmingly obvious and you have to you know cave gracefully or just never admit that you were wrong. I mean that's what a lot of yeah. the mainstream well, that's does. That's interesting you say that, Richard, because um, like if you would have asked me a few years ago what certain things meant in the ancient writings, I would have I would have told you something different than tonight. But that was my uh, step work to find the answers. Like in, in life, you're never going to find the truth or get something right usually at first. You have to go through years of trial and error to find the truth, to get to the to get to the truth. And and a lot of people they don't want to admit that they could have been wrong in the past. But you know what? That was your footwork. To find the answers that you're looking for, you know, the universe doesn't just give you some of the most deepest secrets of nature in the universe. You have to earn that. It has to be a noble quest, and you have to go through a battle with yourself, you know, and your soul, and you have to be totally com- comfortable with who you are and everything else. If you have any uh, resent, you know, resentments or and, and holding resentments about people and different, you're not going to really find answers in life. You're only going to find more struggles and 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 more doubt. And, and and it took me a long time to be able to put the pieces, some of the pieces of the puzzle together. And then once I dealt with a lot of um, past traumas and things like that, and I was let a lot of let all of that stuff go, then the universe started to reveal stuff to me. I think that I, I might have unlocked many many years ago and just didn't realize. And then all these years I've been trying to scramble to put the pieces of the puzzle together when I already had the answers, and I just had to silence my mind and let it come in. You know. See, one of our models is that a lot of this, these answers are in higher dimensions, <clears throat> and the problem is the bandwidth between those dimensions and our 3D reality is so narrow that such little information can be communicated in any particular parcel of time that it takes a long while to build up a, a, a database or a knowledge base through that HD connection, that hyperdimensional connection. And that there are people who are not going through what we call the normal metonymic scientific left brain process, which is me. And instead, they kind of plug in directly to, well, one term would be your higher self, meaning who you really are hanging out in another dimension. And, you know, it's kind of communicating to you things that, yes, is part of your uh, existence knowledge base, but your 3D form is so limited that unless you get these hits from higher bandwidth connection, it takes a long time before, you know, the message kind of dawns and it's like, oh, my gosh, let me give you an example. Very recently, last couple, three years, the Soviets slash Russians have been doing swabs of the outside of the International Space Station, and they've discovered unknown forms of bacteria and algae on the surface of the space station, which is orbiting in a hard vacuum, 260 some miles above the atmosphere. And it's like, it's overwhelming affirmation to me of the uh, Chandra model that interplanetary space and even interstellar space are filled with these ancient bacteria, which have been spewing forth from 
you know, their origin centers for eons. And so space is pretty much permeated all that we can see with this reservoir of living, you know, bacteriology. And that when it found an appropriate medium on which to grow, i.e. the space station, it glommed on and then the cosmonauts brought in samples and sent them down to Earth. And apparently Chandra is now part of a Russian study team, which is headed by a, uh, a woman doctor in, in Russia, looking into the origins uh, of this anomalous life, microbial life on the exterior of the space station, all the while the critics, the guys who have been dissing on Chandra's and, and Hoyle's model for decades, who say, no, it's impossible, impossible, impossible. There is no data. There is no data. And of course, there's a lot of data. The guys who are on the other side of the fence, the guys who are claiming this is all nonsense, they're literally exploring the idea that somehow orbiting 260 miles above the atmosphere, the space station is picking up bacteria from Earth that somehow are able to get up to that altitude and somehow get into orbit. It's nuts. Goose in search of a problem because the obvious parsimonious Occam's razor answer is, well, the space station is a giant Petri dish and as it orbits the Earth and the Earth orbits the Sun and the Sun and the solar system orbit the galaxy, they're just sweeping up these bacterial forms, life forms, and when they find a growth medium, in this case, the exterior of the space station, bingo, they come alive and they start to reproduce. And it's like we're on the edge of confirmation of Chandra's and Hoyle's most incredibly predictive and solution-oriented model for how life in the universe originated. Ra? Yeah, I'm with you. There you are. There you are. Okay. So, okay, we got about four minutes to the top of the hour. What I want to do when we come back, I want to go into this NDE that you had because apparently it was a real break point in your life between what went before and what's come after. It was one of those, you know, choosing a different path, except this in this way the path kind of chose you. So I want to go into that. But in the meantime, talk to me about healing. How did you wind up getting into the world of hyperdimensional technologies with copper and crystals and the things that you're producing? Yeah, and, and you know, the, the NDE experience links into our topic tonight of, of plasma and traveling into the, the plasma waters at the moment of death. So it goes perfect into that. Uh, yeah, working with the copper and crystals sort of uh, just came naturally. Um, being an intuitive um, I've always looked for enhancing. So, so, so this happened post your NDE experience. Yeah. Uh -huh. Yeah. What with uh, the copper and crystals? Yeah. Yep, yep, yeah. Yep. I was nine years old when I had uh, the NDE. Experience. Oh my god. Yeah. It's you know same as uh, what was the guy's name? Uh, Black Elk. I think he was the Black Elk. He, he had a he was a um, a shaman that. Uh, Black Elk Speaks, you can get the book where he talks about – he was a Native American shaman. And uh, at nine years old, he also had a very interesting experience that is uh, very similar to mine when you read the book in, in some ways. But he just – he gives a lot of different symbolism in it. But uh, yeah, we'll get into that. The copper and uh, and crystals just came kind of naturally, just me being into certain things. Uh, Slim Sperling in the 1990s 
really um, influenced me, making copper tensor tools uh, out of the royal cubit measurement when you're twisting the copper clockwise and then making a coil or a loop out of it. Well, that's the same it. kind of stuff that David does. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I By the way, have you, ever, have you ever have you ever worked with him or talked with him? Yes, yes, we're friends. Oh, good, yes. good, okay. Yeah. Because yeah, if and, you uh, weren't, you were about to become friends. <laughs> yeah, we worked together in, in the uh, the show together. We did last time I was on your show as well. And, um, you know, I've, I've kept in contact him since since then. We, we make some similar products as well. Uh, you know, when you wrap copper coils around crystals, it's going to enhance the energies and the properties of the crystals. The only thing I don't really, I don't really like to wrap in copper coils are tektites, me- meteorites, moldavite, things like that. It's a little bit too much energy when you wrap that in a copper coil. But, uh, yeah, the, the copper coils Wait, are well, how can out. you have too much energy? It's a little bit too intense. You can feel uh, – Oh, you mean in terms of you as a human detector? Yeah, yeah. I don't like the feeling. I don't like ah. the, the energy of it when I when I wrap coils around tektites or uh, moldavite, things things of that nature. I like actually vivianite is the one ex- uh, exception that I do I do like to wrap in, in copper coils. Vivianite it's a, it's a little bit different than a moldavite, but yeah, that the energies are it, it, it's too it's too high. I think too much. I don't know the right terminology to say with it, but it's it's too much. I'll tell you what. Hold it there. We're at the uh, top of the hour. My first guest this morning by uh, serendipity is Ra Castaldo, and we're talking about his life, because if he had this NDE at, like, nine, that means most of his life has been devoted to looking at the other side, the hyperdimensional connections. Here on the other side of midnight, my name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return. Welcome back, everyone, on this Sunday night, September 17th of 2022. We're trying to make connections all the way around the world, halfway around the planet, with Chandra Wickramasinghe, Dr. Wickramasinghe, colleague of Sir Fred Hoyle, probably the world's most eminent astrobiologist, because he's got the goods. He's found the stuff that's out there. And he and my guest at the moment, Rock Castaldo, have become colleagues and friends And Ra's background, of course, is totally different. In fact, at the age of nine, it became, what did I say, 2022? I meant 2023. Thank you. Anyway, uh, so Ra's with us, and we're going to have him now go through this remarkable story where at the age of nine, he died. And obviously, he's with us tonight. So as my grandmother would have said, thereby hangs a tale. Ra, tell us yeah. a tale. Well, thank you for letting me share my tale. Thank you, Richard. Beautiful intro. Um, well, like you mentioned in my in my bio at first, you know, I, I had a, a 
uh, a near-death experience, first of all, at birth, basically. Uh, my birth was really troublesome for my mother. My mother's water never bro- broke, and I was born still inside the amniotic sac with the, what's called a, uh, a call birth with a nuchal cord, where you're still in the sac, your mother's water never broke, and you have the umbilical cord actually wrapped around your neck. So I came out still in that amniotic sac. They call it a call bearer or being born behind the veil. Uh, Carlo Ginsberg wrote a really nice book. Professor Ginsberg wrote a book about it called Night Battles because in Italian mysticism and all throughout the Mediterranean and even Slavic, uh, people born this way are looked at as to become seers or even dream seers and travel certain types times of the year during the equinoxes and solstices into uh, their soul will travel into like the astral worlds. That's, that's the mythology that goes along and the mysticism that goes along with those births. So all throughout history, shamans have been looking for, you know, kids born that way um, in the Mediterranean. And they were, they were, it was sometimes seen as an omen, sometimes seen as a good thing, but, you know, so that was my birth, first of all. So I already had that, that sort of intense sort of moment at birth. Right. And then when I was nine years old, I had an experience where I had a really intense accident where, um, I, I played high-level soccer at the time, uh, travel soccer, they called it in New York State. And it was a really rough game against uh, kids that were Irish immigrants. And I had a, um, a situation where I was kicked really uh, really hard with cleats that cracked my, my cup that I was wearing. And it hit me in the testicle, like my cracked, like ruptured oh. my testicle basically, right? Oh, my so God. So I was out on the field. We were far away from the hospital so they threw me in my parents car and on the way to the hospital I'm telling my dad dad you know what it's like to get hit in the, in, in the privates I'll be fine in 10 minutes bring me home I'll be okay so I talked my dad to bring me to the hospital I went home I fell asleep next morning was Monday morning I don't even remember going to school I apparently I went to school I blacked out going to class what has happened was is a a black tissue had formed in my left testicle and it was like cutting off the blood flow and, and oxygen and I passed out. They had to basically cut my testicle open, do an emergency operation or I would have died. And, um, Wait a minute, at the I, school or at the hospital? No, at the hospital. They rushed me from the school to the hospital in the ambulance. I don't remember any of it. I right. blacked out walking to class. Right. And, and it, it was a, it was a miracle just that the, the, this doctor, his name is uh, Dr. Barr, B-A-R-R. And he just happened to be at Nyack Hospital in New York that day uh, doing another surgery. Like he was a, a, a nation known surgeon that just happened so to wait, be wait, in wait. that hospital. You're having, you're dying of this yes. injury. Yes. And a and world-class yes. surgeon just happens to be just happens to be at there. the oh, – come on, Rock, come on. Just ha- look this, it up. Th- this, is, this is like a script. This is like something is planning I know. this. That's why I'm giving this you This is specific. serendipity. Yeah, that's why I'm giving you the specifics. So if someone wants to research, his name is B-A-R-R. And you know he was a really good guy too because he was in his early 30s at the time, and he was like a, a young doctor, and he was very, very respected. And – even to this day, I mean, this is like over 30 years later now. If I mention it to a doctor when I get a physical and I mention who did my surgery, he's like, oh, oh my God, you had Dr. Barr. Like he's well known in the county and all throughout New York State and even the nation. So, yeah, I got really lucky that he was there. And um, uh, basically, I like I said, I blacked out. What I remember, Richard, is about a few seconds before I woke up on the operating table. So what I remember – is I was 
hovering over my body, looking at my body that I could barely recognize beneath me. I, you know, my spirit, however you want to look at it, I was hovering over my body, looking at myself on the operating table, people working on me between my legs. My arms were, both of my arms were extended out with, with tubes in them, IVs or whatever. And I could barely recognize myself. And I literally made a conscious thought that I was like, ooh, that doesn't, like, I don't want to be there. Like, I don't want to go back to that. That doesn't look good. And as soon as I made that conscious thought, a warmth, a light, however you want to describe it, surrounded me on all sides. And I went as fast as I can imagine, straight up, straight up, out of, like, outside of Earth. And there was a wavy, you know, like, on a summery day when you see the heat in the air? Mm -hmm. There was a... I was literally suspended in space above earth and there was a wave of look like water in the air, like a turbulent wave. And I was placed inside of that wave. Is this like, on the earth or in space above it? In suspended in the air above earth in space. So there was a and shimmer. Was, it was a shimmering wave. Although I was never wet or anything. It, it looked like water and it felt like like some sort of wave I was in and I got placed in it like I was in a, a tube, a vortex. And I literally – the best way I could describe it, Richard, is I had to level myself out in this water like I was the bubble in a carpenter's level. And once I finally – and I was standing upright, suspended in it with my arms out, my legs out like in, in the man pose, like the – like that, uh, you know, the creation of man sort of pose, like almost crucifixion pose, like that. Yes, it's, and I was, it's called, I think, man in a circle from Da Vinci. Yeah, man in a circle. Not, it's not da Vinci. da Vinci; it's somebody else in Italy. Yeah, or yeah, you know what I'm talking about. Yep, yeah. Yep. So, um, I was in that pose inside of it, leveling well, myself. Is that out. kind of the pose that your body was down on Earth? Exactly. Right. So, um, I'm leveling myself out in it, and when I finally leveled myself out in it in the water. I woke up on the operating table in that position and I'm like like freaking out with the nurses like like did you where was I just in water and I was like really you know being rude to them as well and they were like no you were you know you were unconscious you were dreaming and all of that and uh after that I mean I was having drinking that stayed with me still to this very no, day but, 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 that's not jump ahead you're you're in you're somehow in space suspended in a vibrating energy field and yeah. you feel you have to balance yourself out. It was like water. It was then like a weight, what like a happened? tube. Um, when I balanced myself out in it, like 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 I said, like I was a like in the carpenter's level, like I was the bubble inside a carpenter's level, and right. I was finally balanced. I woke up as soon as I balanced myself out in it. I immediately woke up uh, on the operating table in that same position. Oh my. Okay. And I was freaking out. Like, did you guys just take me out of water? I was like telling them, like, where was I just now? And they're like, no, you were dreaming. Like, you're okay now. And that that vision of me being in there was the only thing I could think about and that lingered with me for very long. I mean, I was drawing it, and I ended up drawing it as the ankh all the time, as me being in, a, in like some sort of ankh. And I would, for years, until this day, I have notebooks going back to the late, 1980s, because this happened in August of 1987 is when this, this injury happened of mine, my operation. It was like mid-August 1987, and um, 
books. I have notebooks going all the way back to then drawing onks with a, a human head in the middle and arms coming out of it and, and all of this. And I didn't even recognize or understand the symbolism at the time until about 30 years later. I mean, for many, many years, you know. Many, many years sometimes 3D I was, I was, is very slow, yes, yes. Yeah, and many, many years I was trying to put the pieces of the puzzle together, like what happened to me, where I was, what what, what was going on. And now today I, I actually can tell you I understand that I was in what the Egyptians call I, – I, well, this is what I feel. I could be wrong, of course, but I feel I was in what the Egyptians call the Amtua which is what I, from my research, it's taken me all these decades to figure it out, is the magnetosphere, the plasma sphere, the magnetic shield, the magneto sheath, all those regions that's swirling around Earth, right. our magnetic shield. This is uh, a literal swirling vortex of plasma that's formed by the ramming force of the solar wind, and it's formed around our planet. And I, I believe that is the Egyptian duat, the Amtuat, that souls must cross into to recreate their particles, to, to recreate their self in the particles swirling inside that magnetic field. And there's certain specific instructions that's given in the Book of Caverns, the Book of Two Ways, the Book of Gates, the Book of the Dead, uh, various writings, even in some of the Orphic uh, things that have been found from the Orphic mysteries and, and things like the golden plate of Petalia, dif different artifacts have been found. They're giving specific instructions of certain solar kings, solar dynasties of where to travel at the moment of death. And I believe that I caught a glimpse of being in those plasma waters, those celestial waters that now we have the science to define what they were talking about many, many years ago when they're talking about the rivers of the sky. I mean, we have Space well, these planet. are all metaphors. Well, they're metaphors, but now they're they're real science. Richard, yeah, but I the mean, metaphors nowadays, does not does not abrogate the science, but it's really plasma science and hyperdimensional physics, and that's one of the key surprises I'm going to you know spring on you later in the show. Yeah, well, I think I know the surprise you're going to spend. I can elaborate it because I've been reading uh, books about uh, Anthony Parrot and his forms, his his, his uh, some of his. Uh, the choke ring and the flip ring and some of his models that he's made that look like petroglyphs and things like that. So I think I know where you're going with, with the squatter man. <laughs> but, I don't think so. Anyway, no, so or, let, let, let me go back. All right. So you're right. on the operating table. They're saving yeah. your life. You're spread eagle like the Da Vinci man in a circle. Computer yes. says that's what it is. Um, and you suddenly find yourself far above the earth, out of body, encountering some energy field that resembles water that's your that's your metaphor and yeah. you and you feel that you need to somehow work on yourself about balance energy balance now question did you you're nine years old in 87 did you have any intimations that this was familiar that you've been this route before that you may have been in in body on earth before yeah, that's a, that's a good question. That's a very good question. Uh, I actually have had this feeling since I'm young that this is like my last time around, that I've been here many, many times before, and that this is my last go around. Okay. I've had the second question then. Were you all by yourself, or did there, was there other consciousness or consciousnesses that you were aware of that were doing any kind of guiding or saying, you know, it might not be bad if you tried this? 
No, I don't remember any uh, dialogue with, but I do felt that that was there was a group of like four, north, south, east, and west, all around me that escorted me up. It felt like there was a group of four lights. But there was no communication. Not that I remember, but it felt like while I was in the water. So where did the idea of balancing come from? From your nine-year-old? See, this is kind of beyond a nine-year-old, at least my nine-year-old memory. Well. It was it was a physical thing of the balance in the war. I had to literally – it was like an intuitive thing. I had to literally balance myself out in it. Like I was trying to level myself out in the water, and once I totally got level, completely still, everything was balanced, and I was completely still, I woke up. It was like a intuition kind of. To, I had well, to like, or, or it was an ancient memory that you were not accessing the, you know, yeah. consciously. Yeah. Um, okay, been there, done that. This is what I need to do. Yeah, yeah. It was it was just something that I just uh, intuitively started doing. Like I balance. I was like I, I I knew I had to do that to to wake up. Ah. So suddenly that poor body on the operating table was not the place you didn't want to go back to at all. It was a place that you did want to go back to. Apparently, right? And 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 after that, because you know, I actually, you know. It, said for many years like maybe there i had like something like people call a walk-in and things like that i don't think it was nothing like that in any at all i think that i actually activated um some of my past genetic memory because sometimes to die well let's spiritually be initiated hang on on. genetic is 3d some kind of memory yeah well you know sometimes Sometimes people have a near-death experience is nothing, but sometimes when people die and come back, it's sort of you like you went through a spiritual initiation, mm-hmm. right? And that's the kind of thing that I think happened with me. It was sort of like a, a spiritual initiation, and it and it, or and it, or an awakening. Yeah, it could be. See, see, when it comes. Well, to, all right. Let's talk about your life before and after. This was obviously a major, major event. Yes. Describe yeah, what actually, happened after. What did you it, do next? And next? It, uh, and next? My life actually radically changed after that. I started ah. to become different. Uh, the way I would talk to girls was different. The way I approached adults was way different. Um, I, I had uh, more confidence. Uh, I was able to play guitar very quickly. I taught myself. Um, I, I I was always good at sports and, and things like that. But things, things just uh, – Things were different. Things were um, – I think uh, my ego was, was uh, different. I didn't, I didn't have a uh, – I don't, I don't know how to – I was never so, shy. So before I, I this, were you a cocky kid or you were a shy kid? I was never shy, but I used to use my humor before that as a defense mechanism, and I noticed that – after that, it was a little bit different. That I I, 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 was able to talk to adults without being a clown. I was able to approach girls differently and things like that. And uh, it, 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 yeah, it, it changed who I was. It, it, it brought a wisdom to me that I didn't understand yet. Mm. Um, and uh, I think, and, and uh, well, isn't I think that truly- con- isn't that consistent with tapping into a part of you that you had not been accessing before or able yeah, to access I think, before? I think so. You know, I've gone through many lives. I could have been slaves in some lives and this and that, but I think somewhere along my cosmic journey, I had the knowledge of being a spiritual initiate or adept, and I think that's what came up and it was pulled out or activated, and it took me almost 30 years to start really uh, being ready 
to handle some of that information that I unlocked. And you have to first go through a, a battle between yourself. You got to get polarized towards, you know, one, one, one side or the other eventually in your life. And it took me many, many years to Wait understand. Wait a minute. What, 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 one side or the other of what? It, uh, basically, with your with, with in life, like you're you're going to get polarized towards either the light or the dark in in certain things in life. You're so so we're talking good and evil. Yeah, yeah. Okay. When you open yourself up spiritually to vibrations, to uh, what's normally unseen out there, different frequencies, different things, you're going to attract all sorts of energies, the light and the dark, and you're going to be influenced by many different energies. And it might take you many, many years, and some of the biggest obstacles that are going to get put in your way could be the closest people to you, some of your blood, some things like that, some past traumas that might come up. And all of those have to be dealt with before you can really start to work on um, cosmic, having some sort of connection to cosmic consciousness, if you want to say. So did the folks around you, like your, your mom, teachers, uh, you know, students – did they notice this? Was it that noticeable? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Really? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yep, for sure. I actually went through a, a you know, time, a period of well, during my teenage years where I went through some trouble, man. I had a lot of trouble. You know, I went through I went to a group home at a certain period of time. And, you know, there was it was a lot of uh, a lot of trying to figure out who I was now because a lot I had to be creative to calm myself because I was having so many different thoughts, so many different interests that I couldn't focus on one of them. And it wasn't medication. Wasn't the answer. It, that wasn't the answer. Did, Putting somebody did, on, did, did your mom call in doctors? Did they try to sedate you or Ritalin or whatever? Uh, at one time they were, they were asking if I wanted to be on um, something to help me focus on one thing. And I, I, did, I never wanted to go on that. And my mom never wanted me to go on that as well. Like, I think they have like certain medications where, because I was telling the doctor that I had so many different things I wanted to accomplish and this and that. And, uh, uh, yeah, I, I, it wasn't even a therapist that I was seeing. I was talking to the, the, the people at school at the time, because I actually was an advanced, advanced in school. They, there's a school called the Green Meadow. It's a private school in my area, and they were trying to recruit me to go to that school. I actually won a um, a nationwide poetry contest when I was in middle school, and um, there's a, a local author that taught in Rockland Community College over here, John Allman, and he sponsored the, the poetry contest, and I had won, and then he put me in the poetry book and, and all this stuff, and – uh, after that, they had wanted me to go to that private school, and I had taken some tests and different things with that at that school. But I ended up staying in public school. Yeah, I, I I had talked to various people about different things um, over the years um, between middle school and before I started high school. And uh, you know, I think that the thing was is I just didn't understand all this 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 new information that was coming in. And it, like I said, in, in, even in your bio, it took me many years to understand what I was seeing and what I was feeling. And uh, I think that the, the universe has a – in time, you know, when you're – when you're when you want things to happen for you, it's not going to happen. When you're – the universe has a certain plan for you, and it might take many, many years for you to actually put the pieces of the puzzle together, but – uh, my goal was never to be into like plasma astrophysics or or anything like that, right? But it, it sort of I had to find some of the terminologies to understand what I 
experienced and what I saw. And what I realized is that some of the mythologies and things that I was reading for many, many years had already all the secrets like what Professor Chandra, if he if he shows up tonight, if he if he makes it tonight or not, he might have some problems with the internet. But what what he was gonna discuss about the Webb telescope, all those discoveries, a lot of those are already discussed in the Hindu Vedas. Right. They're just discussed like you. And I know you don't want to talk about the spiritual. You like to go to science. But like I said, in the well, past, no, 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 no. I, they I'm, were fused I'm, I, together. I, I'm just saying you know? that what we term as spiritual yeah. is really scientific. You're, exactly. That's well, what I'm saying. But, they were but see, see, to me, science is something you can check, something you can test, something you can make predictions and they come true because you're tapped into the right process. Whereas there are a lot of, of, you know, fakers in the, in the spiritual world, you know, with crystals and cards and whatever, and they're yeah. no more spiritual or connected than, you know, actually, I was going to say my dog, but actually dogs are very connected, some of them. There's anyway. very few real ones. I, I will agree. That's why my friend Maria Wee will, will tell you that while me and her click because there's very few real ones. And we found each other because there's very few of us out there. <laughs> Okay, let me go back to your nine-year-old, you know, break point. What, yeah. How, what were you doing academically before and after? Was there a real change in your studies and homework and class? In other words, did, did everybody say, oh, my God, what happened to him? No, I mean, I was always a smart kid, but it was like I never – I really didn't have to study any, uh, until I went to into community college because like in, in high school, I didn't have to study, and I always got good grades. I never really studied at all. Uh, I, I, I was able to pretty much handle the work pretty well in high school and middle school. That's why I never wanted to leave public school because I found it pretty easy. But uh, <laughs> it's, you know, it was it was pretty easy. And I, and I started as I got older, I wanted to hang out more with my friends in high school and I wanted to play music and I wanted to do this. And I found that sort of work in, in schoolwork. You know, I'd rather read books about comets and things like that. Like seriously, I've been into comets and, 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 and things about the sky for, most of my life, most of my life. So it, it took until I finally started to see like, oh, my God, like it's everything is already there. Like I'm not coming up with any discoveries. I'm just connecting some dots to show you where these discoveries were already made thousands of years ago. And people don't realize that they're those mythologies that we're talking about. They are real sciences. When you when you hear about them talking about celestial waters, I mean, literally space is literally vast streams of plasma. I mean, that flow like rivers. They're between galaxies, between the clusters of galaxies, and they're between the stars within the galaxies. I mean, every star emits plasma. It's, it's, and plasma astrophysics, if you're looking at it through their lens, it's the fourth state of matter, and it's literally it, nothing. Space is not mostly empty space like people think. It's, it's, in plasma astrophysics, 99.999% of the mass of the universe is in the form of plasma. It's operating mostly everything and it's incredibly powerful electromagnetic forces going on. And the way we used to look at the sun is archaic now. It's 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 you in, in plasma astrophysics, which I believe is is the way we should be looking at things, it's not a hydrogen gas ball, it's a plasma star. It's it's a plasma sphere, not a gas sphere. It's it's so hot that it's mostly in the form of plasma. Well this gets to you know? technical definitions because yeah the the, the elements of the sun are hydrogen, helium, you know, a tiny percentage of heavier, 
but their but their physical state it's an ionized sphere of yeah. plasma yeah all the way to the outer chromosphere and of course the corona is millions of degrees hotter etc which are all puzzles but yeah this ultimately and here's one of the things i'm going to talk about later in the show the russians did a series of experiments going back to the 1950s and what they found is that plasmas by way of nikolai kozarev's torsion field research plasmas electrified conglomerations of ions nuclei and electrons gyrating madly but together not separated together a plasma uh, uh, gas because it behaves the gas laws is the connection between our dimensions and higher dimensions so wherever you find plasma you will find a gate between dimensions and the bigger the plasma the bigger the gate starting with candles and you know a candle flame is a plasma yeah i have some experiments to show you pictures whenever you have a chance yeah it's very interesting you're right i have some very interesting experiments that look just like the models anthony parrot made yeah well we will get to that we've got time uh, there's still no joy on chandra i'm wondering if something happened uh you know i mean he's in sri lanka uh, it, it, oh, maybe. It, i don't think it's just the internet because he's incredibly punctual and remember there's no one channel on the internet you know, it was designed to be something very different. Anyway, why don't we hold it there and we will continue my conversation this morning with a very interesting person who is opposed to using science as the connection to these answers is drawing upon some other channels of information that can then be corroborated by scientific demonstrations in three dimensions and technology you're on the other side of midnight my guest this morning is Rock Castaldo who at the age of nine had an incredibly important change experience and life ever since has been different than he thought it would be we shall return back everyone on this Sunday night we're still trying to connect with Chandra Wickrama Singh who of course this show was billed as being the platform to discuss the first year of wobble wobble of webs <laughs> yeah web and hubble wobble <laughs> webs amazing first year discoveries including maybe just maybe that the universe is not just 13.8 billion years old but in fact, could be twice as old. But maybe it's infinitely old and we're just talking about phasings and cycles and hyperdimensional um, roundabouts, if 
that is a term I can coin. Anyway, back to Ra. So Ra, when did you feel that you knew enough to begin to apply some of this hyperdimensional knowledge in, in a way that would benefit people? Well, you know, I, I, uh, I started when I was younger already, like, messing around a little bit with... Uh, Wait a minute, you can't get younger than nine. Come on. No, when I was, like, a teenager, I had okay. already, like, uh, you know, I was interested in tarot readings and things like that, but I never gravitated towards them that much. But I was already feeling that the need to, to try to help people spiritually at that age, I just wasn't ready for it because I, I, you can't help anybody spiritually until, until you can like literally help yourself, you know, and learn how to take care of yourself and judge your and, and handle your own self in certain ways. Well, and, you uh, know, the old cliche, <clears throat> physician, heal thyself. Yeah. So it, it took me, um, it took me probably until I was in my 30 years old until I was actually ready to, uh, work work with others that way um if i can in, interpolate here it took you that amount of time to kind of assimilate and organize and parse this flood of unbelievable new information that you started being exposed to when you had that problem at nine years old yeah yeah and, and i and there's you know various encounters and different things that happened to me throughout the years that that, you know, threw me even further off my course, you know. So uh, so there was some interference and noise, as yeah. I would interpret, trying to keep you from your path. Yeah, definitely. I there think was opposition. I mean, when you're on the cusp of some of the biggest, you know, oh, I've breakthroughs seen you're going to have oh, in your Oh, have life. I seen that happen over and over and over yep. again. You know, I've told you get the, the biggest obstacles. Yeah, yeah, no. Yep. Or as we used to say, mm, shit happens. Yeah, and sometimes they're they're the closest to you. Sometimes they're your own family, your own blood. Your you know it could be some some the people closest to you. Sometimes that are be, be putting the biggest obstacles in your way. You know that's that's sometimes the most hardest to overcome. You know, and and the the, the people you would think would be the least problem sometimes being the biggest and putting the biggest obstacles in your way. And I think that's part of part of your journey here. You know, it's all it's all linked together. It's it's most likely linked to past past karmic debt you know, past karmic influences yeah, that you I, had. I, I know all those models and my model is, you know, shit happens when Yeah, when, you when, might when, be right. You know? Well, because right. if 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 you're going to make a breakthrough, there's a whole bunch of I mean, Earth is not a placid place. Earth is really a very bad place. And it's bad for a reason. Bad people, bad whatever, consciousness from wherever is trying to keep it bad. And anyone trying to change that is going to encounter opposition because of a whole bunch of consciousness, not part of any plan, but they like it the way it is, which is bad. And they will do anything to try to keep it bad. And that's the break point. That's the incredible historical nodal point I think we're rushing toward at Warp 9, where an awful lot of people are going to have to make decisions between good and evil and the first wow. problem is recognizing which is good and which is evil that's true that is completely true i mean uh the the whole the whole point of the mysticism and of people that do spiritual work 
right, is you're going to get polarized towards one end or the other. I look at it like this, Richard. You're either going to help collect, you're going to help cleanse the collective consciousness of humanity, or you're going to help steal the life force from others and contribute to the demise of the energy of others, right? And this is exactly what um, many mystics do: is that when they travel in the astral realms, or they have dream travels, even the aboriginals, when they travel in dream times, that's the real time, right? They're actually trying to help cleanse the collective consciousness of humanity, and they're fighting battles in dream time with those that are trying to steal the energy of others in dream time. Well, isn't, you know, this, isn't this like a, a soul, a consciousness, an entity, a being has two choices? It's very binary, either service to self yeah. or service to others. Yeah, and there's Sounds no like the, the you know, law of one, it, right? It, well, it's it's not like it's all or nothing, but it's an appropriate proportion because unless you have some service to self, you're not going to be around, you're not going to survive. So there has to be a balance of service to self against service to others. If you give everything away and there's nothing left, you die. Yeah, that that sounds similar to like some of those uh, law of law of one channelings that they did the. Uh, that's it. it's all about the service to self, service to others. But uh, not that I agree with those channelings. Uh, well, some of them are, are resident and some of them are not. It's like yeah, you have to use dis- discernment. Discernment, discernment, exactly. Yes. It's about, and it takes a while in 3D to develop the discernment. So I'm not surprised it took you until midlife, or at least what used to be midlife. I have great <laughs> doubts now that that's midlife anymore. But it it took you a while to kind of get the lay of the land, the, the landscape, and figure out where to put your energies. Yeah, it definitely did. And uh, you start to see this, the symbolism. You know, when, when I started going to certain sacred sites and working with my copper tools and crystals and certain harmonic frequencies like 432 hertz and different mm. things at, these, at the, the certain sites, um, especially the red granite megalithic dolmen here that we talked about in New York State, the North Salem Balanced Rock, that's literally built on a magnetic anomaly. I, I feel that these, these uh, spots are, are literally harnessing cosmic energy, solar energy. They're meant to, to communicate with the information, the incredible amounts of information that's being sent from stars and suns. Well, our closest star, of course, is the sun in our solar system that all the information that's being sent out from it, I think, is literally being collected in the red granite in certain monuments. And uh, even Giza, I mean, people talk about the, 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 the measurements of the Great Pyramid. They don't realize the solar measurements that's in that Great Pyramid. I mean, the length of each side of the base, I think, is, is like 365.2442 cubits, which is the exact amount of the solar year, even adding the extra day every four years. So that's like uh, – that's incredible. Like that's a solar alignment, and it's collecting information from the sun. It even has a gradient of, uh, of 10 to 9 for people that don't know what that means. It's for every 10 feet that somebody ascends, one rises in altitude 9, nine feet. And if you multiply the altitude of the Great Pyramid by 10 and raise that to the ninth power, you have uh, 91,840,000, which is I think the exact number of miles from Earth to the sun. And that would also mean that it would take a thousand great pyramids to equal the sun. So that's a pretty incredible number. Well, it's not the exact number, but it's close enough, as we used to say, for folk music. Yeah. <laughs> for a right. bunch of primitives, you know, sweating away, 
calling limestone blocks up a ramp, it was incredibly – so come on. I mean every scientific measurement has what we call error bars, plus yeah. or minus. So the Great Pyramid literally encoded the, quote, average distance of the – remember, the Earth's orbit is not a circle. It's an ellipse, very shallow ellipse. So within that realm, yeah, it's, it, it, it's not the only thing it encodes. It encodes so much. And, of course, the opposition has said, oh, coincidence. Co no, it's not coincidence. It's an ancient librarian stone left yeah. to a future uh, culture by a previous culture when everything through some incredibly traumatic planetary event destroyed almost everything. Yeah, yeah, it's in, it's incredible. I mean, even if like I like to go back to the Vedic, Richard, because the Vedic is some of the oldest writings that we have, and I and I think it really holds some of the most incredible secrets of nature in the universe. Even the Great Vedic War, which I feel is the reason why spirituality and science got divided. Um, the Great Vedic War, literally, if you if you look into the Vedas, they'll tell you the Great Vedic War is over the spotted sacred cows, and that spotted sacred cow literally symbolizes the rays of the sun um and if you think about a sun it is spotted sunspots it is uh, like a sacred cow giving its sacred life force milk to the universe and just like a cow uh, a cow sleeps but it never totally sits down just like the sun it never totally it never it never rests right even though it does sleep in some areas and it's it's the sacred cow right and it's the it's literally over the information that's retrieved from the sun by its solar kings and the great vedic war is for the cows that literally symbolize the rays of the light of the sun it's for the dawn and the days and extending that light it's for the cosmic waters, the plasmic waters, which are specifically mentioned in the Vedas as the waters of the heavens or the waters of the sun world. I mean, how, how better description can you get when they talk about Varuna being the god of the solar ocean? And then his, his weapon is called the Varuna Pasha, which is a golden noose that can lasso souls and pull them into the celestial waters. They're talking about solar prominence, mm. coronal mass ejection loops, and in the most incredible spiritual way. I mean, the Vedic war is literally for the sun itself. Okay, hang on, year, hang on, hang on. Let me interject you know? a couple things. On this show for the last several weeks, we've been focusing on India because yeah. of the first successful unmanned mission by India – to the south polar region of the moon, right? Yes. Okay. Prime Minister Modi, the current head of state of India, believes devoutly, and I use that term very specifically, that what most scholars and most of, of humankind think of as ancient Indian mythologies, he thinks of and acts on the idea that it's really ancient Indian history so oh, yeah for and sure. i'm obviously there with him as are you okay as soon as the indians successfully landed chandrayaan 3 at the in the vicinity of the south lunar pole 19.5 degrees away from the pole and plus 33 degrees in longitude can you spell out hyperdimensional physics in any more blatant, symbolic way. <laughs> then the Indians, who had carefully prepared this mission in parallel 
with the Chandrayaan mission, sent another unmanned mission even before the sun had set on Chandrayaan 3 on the surface. They sent a probe named Adiata, I think, to the, to, to, to the sun, connecting their ancient history of solar information to their mission to the moon, to their life of Indians on Earth, etc., etc. It's all there. Incredible. It's all there. Yeah, it's incredible. You just People have to know how to, to read the context. You have yeah. to read the tea leaves right. That's all. Yeah, people need to remember the context. These are our solar kings, Vedic solar kings. So you're talking about solar deities. That, so it's going to be solar phenomenon. When you see like Varuna and Ganesha and various Hindu gods and they have multiple arms and each arm is holding a specific thing, it's representing the many rays of the sun and the many different technologies and informations and specific things that the sun sends out from its rays. Right? One of the Ganesha, one of his hands is holding the loop, literally holding the coronal loop. Right? It's, 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 it's incredible. And Indra, when it comes to the Vedic War, Indra has to win these seven rivers to flow to the cosmic sea to release the sun out of darkness. How many rivers? Seven rivers. Seven tetrahedral spins. Yep. It's a hyperdimensional yep. message. Yep, and you know, even even the way they they mistranslate certain things in the Bible, Richard, like with Moses, the the Moses gives the Jews uh, the black box, the tefillin, the phylactery. When uh, in right before they leave Egypt and they're about to flee, he gives them that black box as a sign. Right, that black box has certain um, verses in it from wait, Exodus. Wait, are we talking the Ark of the Covenant? No, the, the little black box that, that Jews wear on their forehead and on their on their arm, they wrap it around their arm seven times, actually. Seven, of course. Right? And and they actually they, – they walk around Mecca seven times uh, around Mecca, and they have the black stone. Well, that's the Muhammad. The, yeah. That's well, the before there was Judaism, before there was Islam, before there was Christianity, Moses was the understudy of Jethro, his father-in-law, for 40 years. And Jethro was the high priest of Midian at one time and was the high priest of the Black Stone. And in the first time Moses tells Pharaoh, let my people go so they can have a feast around me in the desert, that word feast is being mistranslated. That word feast in the Bible that they're translating as feast is hog in Hebrew. Hog can mean feast, but it also can mean to walk around someone in circles, right? And hog that I'm translating as to walk around in circles. In Islam, Hajj is almost the same word. Hajj is the pilgrimage to Mecca, where they walk seven times around in circles. Seven times around the big black cube. Yep. And if you and and, and you and know what you, a cube is, don't you? Yeah. Do you know what a cube is? Yeah. What is it? Exactly. Well, the 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 cube, the box, the tetrahedron. No, 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 no. Uh, it's it's the octahedron. It is it is two. Inscripted tetrahedrons, one penetrating the other. It's the double tetrahedron. And the icosahedron, even like with the the bacterial phage, has the icosahedron. Even the Great Pyramid is set up in that icosahedral pattern. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. It's do really, we it's do really we want to get to your items on on the in radio with pictures? Because I think number one would probably be appropriate right about now. Yeah, I think we were – I was starting to touch about on, on, on some of that. Uh, let me see what we have at number one on the other side of midnight. 
It's very Egyptian. <laughs> oh, that was yeah. my own. Uh, yeah. That was my own art. Yes, that was my own art that we did uh, of the the Pharaoh Unus. My representation of the Pharaoh Unus, his journey into the celestial plasma waters. You know, that was my that was my art to that. You can actually get that in poster form in different copies on my website uh, as well if people want that. Um, let me go to tonight's show. Why am I not seeing this now? Oh, here we go. You may need to refresh the other side of midnight page. Are you refreshing? Yep. Okay. Yep, I got it. Great poster, by the way. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, it's. Uh, I was making sketches and digital art for that for many, many years, and then finally I got it to come out the way I wanted. Yeah, that's the my version of of the Pharaoh Unus. You know, people can look up Unus. He, you know, they have the rubble. It's a pyramid of like gravel now in Saqqara, but that's one of the oldest records that we have of writings of, I think, of a pharaoh, his journey into that Tuat, those plasma, that, that plasma sphere, that magnetosphere that I talk about. And, it, and some of those writings with, with Unis, it literally talks about him entering in and the auroras, the green pastures and green br- brilliance that he has to enter through. And it tells Pharaoh Unis literally in the writings to go towards this, the north circumpolar stars where there's a gap in the magnetosphere. He's telling him to go towards the North Pole where you got to enter into the double doors of the Dua and find the cold stream of waters that's literally like in the magnetosheath. It's literally giving them instructions of where to go and telling them that he can recreate himself from himself in those waters. Well, if according to the Russian experiments and the reason, you know how they figured this out? Yeah. They were trying to create, they were trying to create a, um, a, a machine like a tokamak, like, like a donut, like the Princeton guys that would have a seethingly hot plasma that would allow them to create artificial nuclear fusion, hydrogen fusion in a machine here on earth. And they discovered because in a, to do that, you got to really understand the plasmas. And the mathematics were lagging behind the things they were seeing. So they ultimately reached the conclusion that the plasmas were opening up doorways between dimensions. Of course, this is the unmentionable. You're not supposed to talk about this in contemporary science. So ever since I found those Russian experiments trying to recreate thermonuclear fusion by pinching the plasma with magnetic fields and pulses and whatever, I realized that plasmas in any form and in any magnitude, meaning it's a full plasma or it's only a partial plasma, that plasmas are literally doorways between our 3D reality and higher dimensions. And of course, the biggest source of plasma in our neighborhood is the damn sun. It's a seething ball of plasma, and all kinds of things on its surface are plasma-bound, plasma-triggered. It, in other words, it's, it's a multifaceted doorway, and the Egyptians, in both their, their legends, their texts, the Book of the Dead, it's all laid out there, but you have to understand the context. And, of course, yeah. it's not that some primitive bunch of people along the Nile figured this out. 
it's yeah. obviously a legacy information between dimensions from other consciousness or humans who have lived other lives and cycles. Yeah, I can't imagine, Richard, that some scholars look at these writings and say it's it's primitive primitive death worship or something like that. <laughs> you know, to me that's incredible. Like even when they talk about in the ancient Egyptian writings as a solar barge or the boat of millions of years, mm-hmm. right? When when in, in plasma on the galactic scale, where the intergalactic plasma streams span literally distance that, distances that are measured in millions of light years. Right, the cycle times are measured in literally millions of years per cycle. That's a boat of millions of years. I mean, well, incredible. unless you have the proper context, other language, other mythology, other history is like gobbledygook. Unless yeah. you have the code key, you'll never arrive at the answer, and the code key is hyper-dimensional. But of course, yeah. mainstream scholarship can't imagine that so-called primitive humans thousands of years ago had any science that transcends their efforts. So it all gets relegated to the dustbin of history, and it requires people who can walk in two worlds like a certain guy named Ra to bring, <laughs> well, answers, nice of you. To bring answers to the confusion. Thank you, Richard. That's very nice of you. Well, number you see, number two is the coronal mass ejection loop. If people are watching on the other side of midnight, the, the pictures that, that uh, Keith Morgan and Richard posted, um, the coronal loop, number two that we have there, that is exactly what was described in the ancient Egyptians as the Ankh. Many people out there, of course, are familiar with the Ankh, but many might not be familiar with one of the most intense weapons of the gods in Hindu and Vedic. This is called the Pasha in Vedic. And sometimes referenced as the Varuna Pasha and even the Ankh Usha, right? And it's literally described as a golden noose that comes from the sun that can lasso souls and pull them into the celestial waters and even take out the demons on the world and take out the bad of the world. And it's it's really incredible. And if you look further down, number six or number seven, you can see examples of some of the Hindu gods holding that coronal loop. Right, it's really incredible. Even when number five, you have Akhenaten and his line of the 18th dynasty, you have literally the solar disk, arms coming down from the solar disk, handing the coronal mass ejection information to its solar kings. Right, really incredible symbolism here. Even the the symbol that. Persians, the Assyrians, the Egyptians, all these cultures use even Vedic is the the winged disc that many people are familiar with. I truly don't think this is any kind of primitive symbol, but it represents the power of the solar wind. Literally represents the might and the force and the information that travels with the solar wind, which to me, the solar wind network, all this plasma that's coming, all the rivers that are teeming from all the stuns and stars, that's the Akashic record. And in, and in Vedic, space is called Akasha. That is, space is plasma. That is the, the, the and our Earth's Akashic record, I believe, is our magnetosphere. And the intricate, dynamic landscape throughout it is like a hallway of Amenti. It's different. Well, the, different. the magnetic fields are how the plasma gates between dimensions are manipulated, either naturally through cyclic forces, orbits, precession, whatever, or oh, artificially yeah. through 3D consciousness. 
as a technology. Now, here's where things get really weird. Isn't it interesting that the moon and the sun optically are like exactly the same size? And that during a total solar eclipse, which we're going to have an annular eclipse where the moon doesn't cover the sun in about a month, and then next year, next April, kind of around my birthday, we're going to have the second total eclipse crossing the entire United States, if you include the the, uh, partial phases on the left and and right coast. And that'll be the the second time since 20. uh, 18, when the when the um, uh, first one crossed the United States, and it's during a total eclipse when the moon, because of its elliptical orbit, is just at the right distance, so it just covers the disk of the sun and the chromosphere. That's the only time with the unaided eye you can look at the sun safely, and you'll see these loops, these coronal arches extending above the surface of the sun 93 million miles behind the moon which looks like a dark circle in the sky and that art form that that idea of a disc with these loops extending from it has been found here in the american southwest in petroglyphs indians native americans were carving this stuff and the anthropologists and archaeologists haven't a clue as to what they're representing, but obviously, Ra, they're representing exactly the conduit of consciousness between dimensions visible on the sun in that brief moment of a total solar eclipse. That's amazing. That's incredible. It really is incredible. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, it, it, these these. These massive loops, you know, they're they're from magnetic forces. You know, and people start once you start to realize that, uh, and 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 look into the plasma and some of the background of plasma astrophysics, you'll see some of the most incredible answers are already there in front of us. I mean, plasma is the lifeblood of the universe. It's everywhere, powers everything. You know, it's it's really incredible, and uh, that's amazing. That's amazing. There's also a petroglyph. If you guys look it up, it's called Squatter Man. The petroglyph. Now, in 2015, I think someone came out that it looked like a plasma uh, model, and I do have the plasma model that people are talking about that it did look like. It's it's the model by Anthony Parrot. It's on. Do we have? I think Keith did add it here. It's um. Let me see. I might have to go to the next page. It's all on one page. Oh, it is. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. It, we've got eight items of yours up there. The last one is an elephant. Yeah, no, no, no. He, I ended up sending it to him on uh, on Skype later on. Oh, but, so he uh, hasn't been posted yet. Yeah, you guys can look it up uh, if you want, if you're listening out there. Well, he can probably man. post it. All he has to do is, did you send it in the Skype chat window? Yeah, he has it in Skype. Okay, then yeah. just make it number nine. We can get it, we can get it later. Okay, let me, well, <laughs> while, while he's doing that, let me tell you this. Because if, in fact, stars are huge, gravitationally accumulated spinning balls of plasma what do you imagine if you assemble that much plasma in one place in 3d space-time you're going to do you're going to punch a hole between dimensions and what might come through 
Okay, are we? Oh, we're definitely. We see, I need more warning because I get caught up in all this. Okay, we are literally at the top of the hour. My guest this morning is Ra Castaldo. We're going far afield from where our discussion would have been with Chandra until the end of the morning. And I'm beginning to wonder if maybe, just maybe, something has arranged for Ra to be our guest tonight. And Chandra will wait until another morning. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return. And welcome back, everyone, to the other side of midnight, which is now Sunday night, Monday morning here in the Land of Enchantment. And our conversation has gone in a very intriguing direction. And as I said, I had some surprises for Ra for later in the show. Well, we're now later in the show, and it's time to bring those into the conversation. So let me bring Ra back on. All right, there you are. Do you know that I've had a professional astrophysicist on the show who actually has ventured a model that he's published in the mainstream scientific press that stars part of the Milky Way over a range of what are called spectral types from red dwarfs to uh, F-type brilliant stars, brighter and more massive than the sun. That stars, in fact, are intelligent consciousness in the galaxy. This is a mainstream scientist, a very esteemed astronomer who lives in New York City and who unfortunately does not like staying up very late. So I haven't been able to have him on recently, but his mainstream model is that stars can be plasma conscious. And that opens an incredible set of options and possibilities all going back to the work that you have been citing for the last half hour. Yeah, that's incredible. That is an incredible statement by someone of that magnitude, right? And that that that's that's great. That's that that's the that's the area I'm going from. And and in fact, that's exactly what's described in in the Vedas. I mean, and and even the Sanskrit language is supposed to be. Uh, they don't call it a language of the gods. Just just you know as as some sort of cool name i mean it's literally supposed to be a cosmic language in all the primal sounds of the universe you know and the it's it's literally said that sanskrit comes the sound of sanskrit the language comes from the sound of shiva's cosmic drum and when you think about the sun the face of the sun it looks like a drum right and when if you if you're thinking of the sun as a plasma star a plasma star is externally powered and it's energized at its surface, just like a drum. So if that's if that's the metaphor that they're connecting, that is incredible. You know, uh, the 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 Shiva's drum thing. And and well, and, hang on, hang on. But what, what what do drums do when you beat them? Yeah, it keeps the time of the they universe. They vibrate. The it's vibration. Oh, vibrate as well, it's yeah. Frequency. Well, that's what they do. That's their whole purpose. What what this is all metaphorically coming down to is. 
It's all about frequency. All about frequency. And frequency in what? Well, in different mediums, but a wave is a wave is a wave is a wave. So you can do metaphors between dimensions, between water waves or acoustic waves or plasma waves. Yeah. Have you ever heard some of the uh, uh, NASA translations of the plasma machines on the spacecraft as they're recording the literal plasma waves in the um, uh, plasma spheres of Jupiter or Saturn or Uranus, etc.? I gotta hear them. Oh, it's like them. it's like incredibly encoded information. In fact, the plasma sure. sounds made when the uh, Dawn spacecraft approached uh, 67P, when you speed them up by a factor of I think a thousand or maybe five thousand, it sounds like code. It sounds like a musical wow. sliding code, and I wish I had an ability to. You know, get this on the air live. I, I can't go find it right now, but you know, I didn't know this conversation would go in that direction. So, but yeah, it's it's like everything ultimately comes down to waves in a medium, which can be translated into different media and even acoustics, so we can hear them. That's pretty interesting. Yeah, I mean, that's it's. I mean, in Sanskrit, they talk about how the like the letters of the Sanskrit alphabet are like said to arise from from Shiva's cosmic drum, like when he beats it while he's performing that thunderous uh, movement of his Nataraja, you know, that Lord of the cosmic dance of existence that they have right outside of CERN, right? And he's and he's standing in front of a fiery plasma sphere. <laughs> Right. It's it's like it's really incredible. I mean, and, and the Sanskrit, they have different ways of it's a different kind of language. Like there's guttural talk from the from the throat. I mean, some is pronounced through the palate, some through the teeth from the top of the roof of the mouth. And there's there's different consonants like they have uh, the cause, the, the ta's, the pa's and all these and, and, and different ways of, of pronouncing things. But this is supposed to be a cosmic universal language that transforms your body and your mind and connects you, your physical self to your universal self. That's what the Sanskrit language was supposed to be developed for. Wow. Yeah. It's really incredible. Yeah. And, and, and when they, when the metaphor of, of, of Shiva's cosmic drum, I, I found that incredible. Yeah. In Sanskrit, the vowels are literally the most important sounds and there's consonant sounds as well. And there's different higher meanings in all different, like these sounds there's, there's primal sounds, there's vowels, there's all these different things going on, and they're supposed to be the, the sounds of the universe, you know, and, and there's mantras, specific mantras and hymns that are made with these sounds specifically to the sun, and then said throughout the year, certain times, I mean, it's, it's literally, they're, they're not bull, bullcrapping when they say it's a universal language in the language of the gods, and it, it, it literally is. And uh, I, I think that it's it's meant to activate DNA and cosmic consciousness. You know, the very the very Sanskrit language is about understanding science of sound. It literally is, and the mantras. I mean, it, just people just to have have worked with just say that 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 Om or Aum and let it vibrate in your throat. You could feel it in your body, and I, I know people have felt that. You know, just that 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 very simple that point you know but sanskrit you know if you use the alphabet as mantras the inner power of the sound is it, 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 it's incredible it's like it's 
it, it transforms you and it's it it teaches the human being about its origins of being a star it it connects you to your higher dimensional knowledge hmm. and uh learning sanskrit is not as hard as everybody thinks as well it's a little bit hard but i've been trying it for the last few years here and there and it's 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 really incredible when you learn to pronounce certain words in certain ways you know and it it as you learn the language as you start to speak the language, you start to get universal messages of what they, it, it comes with those sounds as well. And, and you're right. Uh, light it, and all that, it could, it could move by sound. And I literally think that the secrets of nature and the universe you can find through the hymns all the way from the Hindu to the Hopi, you know, all the way down. You know, like the Hopi, the Hopi is very interesting as well because you've yeah, heard they, of they are They are my neighbors here in northern New Mexico. Really? Yeah. Yeah, that's incredible. Yeah, I have some petrified wood from from their from their area that I really like to wrap in copper and stuff sometimes. Okay, uh, let's, uh, this is the perfect segue. Let's talk about we talked about frequency. Let's talk yeah. about the magic frequency, which I was uh, kind of reintroduced to by Michael Hill. Four thirty-two hertz. Talk about four thirty-two and its impact on life. Yeah, I mean, it's it's, it's 432 is, is is actually written. That number is used all throughout sacred writings as well. And I use the 432 hertz various uh, frequency generators that I use the 432 hertz to imprint the copper with and the crystals with. I actually make uh, copper tensor cages, Faraday cages, that I connect cables from the frequency grader to, and then I put the crystals inside. Okay, hang on, hang on. If we're going to go that route, let's go back to when did you get into copper and HD technologies and healing? What was that? In the late late 90s. Okay. Um, when I – well, uh, so I about, already so, – So about 10 years after your experience. Yeah, I think I first was like – yeah, like 99, 98, 99. Um, I got introduced to – have you ever heard the name Slim Sperling? He's passed now. But, yes, yes. Yeah. I got introduced to some of his products, his light, light, But light other people tool. might not. So give us a background on Mr. Sperling. Yeah, Slim Sperling. Um, I don't know what his, his, I don't know if he had a background originally in science or whatever, but he, he, he sort of rediscovered working with copper. If you, well, first of all, a normal piece of copper has a positive and negative charge pull to it. But when you, twist the copper clockwise it's sort of like wringing out a sponge where all the negative charge is being twisted out of it and you're leaving just a positive charge within that copper and you, when you then make it into a coil well, wait, or, wait 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 if let's say we're ta- we got a simple strand of copper wire right yes and you clamp it at both ends right yes do you twist it well, what we do with – what I do is you can twist it. You can put it in a vise and twist it, um, or you can put it in you, – you hook the one end, and you put it – and take the drill bit out, and you put it in the drill and let the drill, drill twist it. Right, but you're literally you know? twisting that strand of copper. Yeah, you're twisting it. Now, hang on, like hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on. Squeezing a sponge out. The almost. standard idea of copper wire for electricians is you've got a tube. The electrons will flow on the surface. They don't throw – flow through the core because electrons try to get away from each other so they are on the surface of the copper when you twist it 
you're twisting literally the pathway, the freeway of the electrons to flow on the surface of the copper in a spiral, in a vortex, in a hyperdimensional vortex? Yeah, and then and when you make that, that, that coil, it's like a vacuum. It'll suck the negative energy to, to the bottom, and positive energy will flow out the top like a loop. Like that's what that AccuVac loop, if you guys can see what the, if you look up what the AccuVac is, um, I make the AccuVac loops as well. They're, they're a continuous loop of sucking the negative energy out and putting the positive energy back in. It's a continuous loop of that. Now, does this only work with copper or other metals that are conductive uh, likewise? Well, well I, it can work with silver and gold and as well, but, you know, copper is, is – the better to work with because it's cheaper and it, it's how about, how about it, aluminum i've never used aluminum but i'm i don't i'm pretty sure it, it could work with pretty much all metals See, I, I would suspect and this is where science comes in if you try this with aluminum it won't work the same way it, you know why it probably wouldn't maybe because i don't know aluminum, i never tried it because aluminum screens torsion field energy that's interesting it's the only metal we know that does this, which, of course, is why I think aluminum is being used in chemtrails, because wow, if, yeah. if, if, you, if, you, if you float a lot of aluminum in the environment, you wind up screening human consciousness from HD fields and interaction. It's like a filter. It's like blocking out the sun. So is the huge chemtrailing going on all over the planet in fact, an insidious effort to keep people screened from higher dimensional influences, consciousness, connectivity, as the physics of Earth, because a procession is opening the hyperdimensional gate for consciousness wider. See, I told you tonight was going to be full of surprises. Yeah, I like it. It's sometimes you, the, the best things come at, when you're flying by the seat of your pants, right? <laughs> Well, I plan to talk to you about this in the third hour after we got some astrophysics out of the way with Chandra, and he would be an incredible part of this conversation. Obviously, we will reschedule him to do this again with you, but uh, it seems to me that maybe somebody else is producing tonight's show so that you can kind of lay out the background of your work. That's interesting. Thank you. I, I appreciate that. Maybe it, 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 that's hey, the way I'm we're just supposed a reporter. to work out. I'm just a reporter. I'm just we, commenting we on something. what I'm seeing. To bring up Professor Chandra that I want to point out that I just remembered, one of the things that you asked me about what, what was true in his books that I find very interesting, um, and that's explained right in the Vedic writings when they talk about Shiva, and uh, Professor Chandra, I'd like to, I, I, I was holding this for him, but we're going to say it too. I'll mention it today, he can go into it more deeper because he's written about this in his books. Now, everybody talks about how the Himalayas is, is a place of, of the gods, a place where DNA was the, – the Aryan race started and all this thing. They talk about the origins. Well, the Himalayas is a very interesting place because there's very special spots in our planet that communicate with the cosmos in a very interesting way. Now, when we go – Richard knows this, but for people out there that, that don't know, when we go into a minimum sunspot cycle, that's like an open invitation 
for stuff that's lurking in the stratosphere to come on in. And what do I mean by stuff? I mean like millions of gallons of like cometary dust and meteoric injections and all the stuff that's floating around space that gets deposited and that gets stuck in our stratosphere and starts lurking in our stratosphere. When we go in the minimum sunspot spike cycle, places that there has there's breakthroughs in the stratosphere are like open invitations for all that stuff to come in. And one of the spots that we have a breakthrough in the stratosphere is the Himalayas. Now the Himalayas is set up in such a way that it punches a hole in the stratosphere and forms a funnel drainage route for all the stuff that's lurking in there to come on in. And when it comes on in, it first places it sweeps on through is Hong Kong, Taiwan, places like that, right? So they talk about how Shiva literally sits on the, the, the edge of the Himalayas doing his cosmic dance of fertility and destruction. Well, that's exactly the spot where all the bacteria, all the stuff comes in from space and that's lurking in our stratosphere. And in December 2019, we went into one of the most minimum sunspot cycles that we had in over 100 years. And look what happened. We had a new virus on the planet. And the first places it went was the China areas and places like that. I mean, could it be that it came through space and it came through the Himalayas area? Well, that was that, that when Chandra and I talked about this at the time, and he felt pretty confident that it was part of this cosmic cycle of viruses that are allowed into the nursery because of the fields, you know, provide a kind of a conduit, a gateway, a doorway. Yeah. So, and and the Himalayas, I think, is one of those spots where. They're, they're, they might explain it in a, in a spiritual metaphor way that it's Shiva that's sitting on the top of the Himalayas doing his dance, but it's literally it forms a, a – uh, it punches a hole in the stratosphere, that, and it, it drains. It's like a funnel drain for everything that's been lurking up there, and, and when we go into that minimum sunspot cycle like we did in 2019 in December, uh, I think that's that's quite possibly – what could have happened and, and, and maybe the Himalayas could have been literally designed that way, made that way by Vedic kings. Well, by... if, if the epidemiologists kind of do some real research here, yeah, they may, may, might find that COVID-19 did not begin in Wuhan, but in fact began on the Tibetan plateau. And since nobody has looked, nobody has found it. Yeah. Yeah, and of course they might have it might have came from space and then later on they took it to a lab and added nanotechnology and whatever the hell could have happened, but I think originally it came from space. I mean, look at look at the the red flu. Professor Chandra will tell you, the sickest he's ever been in his life was in 1978, the year I was born. And that's when they had the red flu. And they had sporadic cases in uh, spontaneous cases were breaking out in Bombay and in Boston. At the same time, and people weren't flying all over the place. No, wait, 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 wait. So I, I don't think I've heard of this. The red flu. The red. It was called the red flu in the late 1970s, and and Professor Chandra, he'll tell you that was the sickest he's ever been in his life. If you can find a link after the show, and we'll post it for uh, you know for Radio with Pictures and and uh, Club 19.5, because yeah. I've, I've never heard of the red flu. Yeah, they were trying to say it originated in Russia at the time, but well, 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 they always do that. Just so, like they so, call this so, the Chinese flu. So this was a, a kind of a nickname. Yeah, it was the nickname because they thought that it started in Russia, so they were calling it the red flu, just like the Spanish flu, the red flu, right, and now yeah, the okay. Chinese flu, right? Okay, okay, all right. Yeah, it's and and, and uh, 
you know, in one of Professor Chandra's books, he writes about it um, that, you know, they were having cases in like Bombay and in, in Boston or wherever it was in the same day, hundreds of cases. That's not from person to person spread, especially in the 1978. You're not having that all day long from those places where people are, are mixing like that. So, I mean, that's proof right there. I think that it's coming in from somewhere else, not from person to person spread. Hmm. Okay. So Chandra was sicker than he'd ever been with this so-called red flu. Yeah. What happened? Yeah. Uh, you know, thank God, of course, he survived, but he was like, you know, really, really sick. And that was that was the thing at the time. They thought that it originated in Russia, just like they thought that this originated in Wuhan and that it's some sort of Chinese flu. But um, I, I just like in, in Professor Chandra is pretty much sure that the whooping cough came. I forget what meteor shower that it was coming coming on every three years. It would it would appear, you know, these, you know, that's these are one all, of the things I need to ask him as to when he and Fred kind of figured out, correlated that these global flu outbreaks and other, you know, in, infectious diseases appear to come in cycles, and the cycles appear to be correlated with certain meteor uh, and or cometary debris impacting the Earth. Yeah, and I think that's more, that 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 work is more important today than ever. Oh my God, yeah. But the problem is really? you don't you have the mainstream that will not admit that anything goes on above the stratosphere. <laughs> yeah, just like you know, most most uh, people that write about mythology and cosmology won't admit that the Ankh is a corona loop because they probably wrote in a book somewhere that the Ankh was something else, and they don't want to. Just like uh, you can't be afraid to to admit something's wrong, right, Richard? Be, the whole reason for science is to, to find the truth. If we're wrong in the past, yeah, but then remember guess what, what we'll you find said it in the future. Remember what you said twenty or thirty hours ago. <laughs> okay, that for every insight and HD connection and, you know, revelation of trans-dimensional information, there is pushback, there is opposition, there's bad guys trying to keep us from figuring it out and making it global and getting people to say, oh, so that's what's going on. In other words, you have the yin-yang, you have opposition to every step forward you know, a step back or two steps, that kind of thing. So I don't see this ignorance as being accidental and just dumbness or stupidity or inertia. I see it as active effort to keep the human race from matriculating to higher and higher consciousness levels. Somebody's trying to keep us down on the farm, and they're doing a damn good job of it. That's for sure. That's for sure. I mean, but it's we're, not we're, perfect. It's not perfect. We will win. We just have to be, as McCoy said to Spock one day, very, very, very careful. Yeah, I think I think what is happening too is 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 like the science, or not the science, the technologies that we're using and in interfacing seem to be replacing our connection to nature and our spiritual connection to the universe, if you want to say. What I, what I mean is, is that why would someone put in the hard work to have a spiritual life where maybe you can telepathically communicate with the collective consciousness when you could just lazily instant message everybody, group email everybody? You know, the technologies we're using is a replication of what we should be using, right? It's, it's replacing it. Instead of harnessing cosmic energy, we're replicating 
that. Instead of using like megalithic sites and things like this to harness cars, cosmic and solar energy, we're replicating it in other ways and it's replacing what we should be using. And it's forming a, a new layer around us that's an artificial layer and possibly changing our DNA. And maybe when people are passing in at the moment of death into the plasma waters, they're including some new artificial element of nanotechnology or what have you that's that's going into the cosmic waters and, and changing everything. I would probably argue with that if we had a lot of time, which we don't, you know, because I think things are moving along quite nicely. Yeah. I mean, I mean, people are talking about things in the mainstream that never were discussed. Yeah, that's true. Like the other day, I saw some study. I, I got in on the tail end of it, and I couldn't crack it back in time. But there's some new study about life after death that the mainstream was talking about. Well, most of the time, the mainstream doesn't talk about life after death. They that's are sure. now. That's for damn sure. Yeah, well, people people realize that, um, you know, I think people are, are more – well, it's always been the biggest concern of people on the planet, right? The main question is, is who, who are we? Where are we going? Why are we here? That's always been the biggest questions, and I think nowadays people are, are more concerned than ever about health because they see the, 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 the what we're facing now. I mean, we're at a, a very rare time in history where – Technology is moving forward, but we're seem to be moving backward in humanity, and we're not we're not evolving along with our technology the right way. I mean, it's it's re replacing our evolution. It's to, instead of us spiritually growing, it I seems would, to be hindering. I would argue it. that that's only a temporary. Remember, two steps forward. I hope so. Step, well, I'm I'm seeing other signs. Like let, let, let's go back to four thirty two. Michael's okay. research, oh, yeah, we totally went Michael's <laughs> research and your research are totally independent. Uh, I don't think you guys even have ever talked, but, but you should. The point is he created a technology with disks, with quartz, with copper, and you put water on it or any other fluid that has water like coffee or tea or whatever. And according to my friend Beverly Rubick, who is a, um, a brilliant you know, biologist – and a, a devotee of energy medicine, when she measured the water that had been sitting on Michael's discs, the effect in, in Carilion um, photography, which is basically a high-voltage plasma means of revealing the connection, she found that the longer the water sat on his geometric discs, which are structured out of 432 frequencies, the more potent and biologically available and energetic the water, the fluids became. Now, that's, that's separate from your work. So we've got about, well, actually, we don't have any time at the bottom of the hour here. So when we come back, we will pick up on that note, pun intended. My guest this morning is Ra Casaldo which is a shortened version, an Egyptian version of his name, which is Ralph, who had an incredible experience in uh, 1987. He almost died. And after that experience, things opened up. His life took on all kinds of new directions. 
some good, some bad pushback, efforts to limit his new access to different consciousness. Does that sound kind of familiar? Anyway, you're on the other side of midnight. We are getting by without Chandra with us tonight. Obviously, again, I'm just kind of uh, thinking out loud here. I think maybe tonight you were supposed to hear Ra's full background and current story. My name is Richard C. Helgland. We shall return. And welcome back, everyone, on this Sunday night, now Monday morning here, on the other side of midnight. My guest this morning is Rock Castaldo, and we're talking about his research, which so dovetails with some of the things that Chandra was going to talk about. Obviously, we will get Chandra at some point, maybe, maybe next weekend, we'll try again. But it's given us a window to talk about some really interesting correlations to plasma physics and astrophysics and technology, which, as I said, going back to the Russian experiments in the 50s and 60s, demonstrated that plasmas are not just tangled accumulations of positive and negative matter, protons, neutrons, nuclei, electrons, all in a swirling gas, but They do other things. They seem to open the doorway to other energies and other dimensions. And this is not just speculation. This is actual real science. In fact, when we bring Ra back in a moment, I'm going to talk about a specific set of experiments which overwhelmingly has demonstrated that something of this nature on an absolutely unimaginable scale has been going on on Earth since July 16th, 1945. And if that sounds vaguely familiar, well, let's bring Bra back. Oh, before we do bring him back, let me give you a phone number. If you want to join the conversation, if you've got a point or you have a question or you have an insight that uh, this evening has given you, you might try calling 917-889-889. 8802-917-889-8802. One more time with feeling. 917-889-8802. So, Ra, you ready for another surprise? Yeah, hit me with it. Okay. Go to my items uh, on the other side of midnight. Remember, you click on tonight's banner. That will take you to the guest page. The banner is duplicated at the top. Under the banner on the guest page, there are fast links to items with my name, Chandra's name, and Ralph's name. Click on my items. Click on Richard. That will take you down. Scroll down to items five and six. Five is a color image, one of the very few that we've found. 
of the Trinity uh, atomic bomb test here in New Mexico down at White Sands in 1945. Item number six, I mean, after we successfully developed, we meaning the United States, Oppenheimer and his team, developed a nuclear fission technology, then the United States uh, inaugurated an incredibly fast-paced uh, testing program of both atomic weapons and fusion weapons, thermonuclear weapons, where basically by smashing hydrogen nuclei together, you could produce much higher yields. That was called the super, developed by a, a colleague of Oppenheimer named Edward Teller. And so the 1950s, well into the 1960s, we were banging off nuclear weapons almost every week and sometimes twice a week, both atmospheric tests and later underground tests in Nevada. And ultimately the Soviet Union joined in and then China and then India and Pakistan and Israel and the world is now awash in nuclear technology, weapons technology developed from those early frenetic years after the dropping of two bombs after Trinity on Hiroshima and Nagasaki in 1945. One of the weirdnesses, if you click on number six, Ra, you're going to want to do this, okay? As part of the thermonuclear tests in the Pacific, uh, Kowajulan and Bikini and whatever, the Atomic Energy Commission, which was in charge at that time, kept a very careful experimental log of what they intended to create in the way of destructive power. And in fact, the actual yield of destructive power when they in fact banged off these various weapons. And as you can see from those two tabulated graphs, they had a test called uh, Bravo, uh, a test name, uh, the umbrella name for the experiment was Bravo. The actual test was called Shrimp. And they imagined, they calculated based on the best nuclear equations of, of the time that they would produce about six megatons of explosive yield from this particular thermonuclear explosion. In fact, they got 15 megatons. They got so much more energy out than they could ever have imagined by their calculations of the time. And you can go through the graphs and you can see that there were an extraordinary number of tests where the yield was either much weaker than they imagined or it was much, much higher than they had calculated. And to this day, I mean, there have been some arm-waving efforts to explain why this should have been, having to do with uh, uh, new isotopes and things like that. But in fact, they don't to this day really understand why when they detonate a nuclear weapon, some days it will be small, and some days it will be much bigger. And of course, our explanation is because a nuclear weapon creates a huge ball of plasma at superheated temperatures of millions of degrees. What they are doing that the mainstream does not yet understand, but which is in their data, they are creating huge gates between dimensions and energy of incalculable, literally incalculable amounts flows through in those nano and microseconds 
of the explosion and something from other dimensions enters our 3D dimension by means of that gate created by the technology. And may I propose, Ra, that in addition to just raw incohate energy, consciousness of a certain variety uses those moments to come through and has been coming through as long as we have been testing nuclear weapons on this scale up until the treaty of 1963. And then the experiments went back to much smaller size scale experiments in laboratories with lasers and things like that. Something, and I'm not quite sure how to phrase this, but something seems to want to, shall we say, increase the number of naked nuclear explosions in the biosphere, in the Earth's environment. And my suspicion is, if the idea of malevolent consciousness is part of this equation, something is trying to break through and it is not good, both in a physical sense or in a spiritual sense for the consciousness of human beings here on earth, which is why suddenly in the midst of this Ukraine insanity, we're finding people on both sides talking realistically about World War III. And one of my proposed ideas is maybe something not of this world or of this dimension is pushing that forward so that these consciousnesses can have a free access to this dimension. What do you think? That's an incredible thought. I love that. Like that's you put that together yourself? Yep. That's incredible. That's what the Richard. Enterprise mission exists to do. That, that think is, outside that is really, the box, really outside. That is really incredible. I mean, I, you know, that might actually, you know, so many people think that because of like L. Ron Hubbard and Jack Parsons' work in the 40s that that opened up some sort of dimension where these Yeah, the so-called Babylon coming. working. I think right, it was right, the, the, dam, the damn tests. I don't think something the entered our the Something <laughs> entered our nursery that should not be here. Wow. And it does not want to leave, and it wants more company, and the way it could get it would be to push the planet into global thermonuclear war. That's incredible. That's that's a powerful insight, and I and and you know what? My body responded to to that. Like, there's some kind of you're onto something because you know my I got those my spidey sense was going off. <laughs> Well, this is why I wanted. See, this is why I wanted to have you on uh, the same show with Chandra because Chandra's got part one of this, and this may be part two because if you look at interstellar space, intergalactic space, it is filled with plasmas, and if those plasmas are doing what I think they're doing, consciousness can enter our three D universe through these ionized regions of plasma starting with interstellar clouds and collapsing to incredible pinpoint sources of gates between dimensions and the Egyptians. Go back to the Egyptian mythologies. They talk about stars as the gates between dimensions. 
Yep. Yeah, I mean, and all the mythologies, they, they're telling you about plasma clouds. They're telling you about you know, the, the sun with plasma, even Zeus. And they're even, they're even giving you some things that we're just finding about now that plasma, uh, I mean, lightning is collected, co- connected to plasma. Even the hurricanes and the routes of the hurricanes lightning on our plasma. plasma. Yeah, right? Yeah, you know, it so, creates and, a plasma. Look, look everything, from, like, everything from candle flames up to stars. Yes, our plasmas. Yes. And, what and, if and what if the consciousness that can come through is dependent on the strength of the plasma gate? Why in ceremonies for commemoration of the departed souls? Sacred fire ceremonies exactly. is the old form of worship, yeah. And candles and yep. dance ceremonies around campfires, etc. It's all about creating gates to assist between dimensions 100 percent, 100 percent. i mean even even um the very you mentioned the hopi earlier we'll leave people with another gem before we go i i really think i'm onto something with the hopi prophecy everybody's heard of the blue star kachina prophecy right yep what do they what do they talk about in this this blue star kachina prophecy they talk about that um you know i think it's relating to the cosmos now what they talk about how um it's going to pull off its face in the plaza or pull off its mask in the plaza, but reveal itself, right? Where there's going to be let – me, let me read it to you. I think I have it here. Uh, it says, the end of all Hopi ceremonialism will come from a kachina who re- removes his mask during a dance in the plaza before the uninitiated children. So I literally think that this blue star kachina that's going to come after this mask is removed in the plaza before the uninitiated children the uninitiated children are are earth right but i think the mask in the plaza is a gamma or some sort of burst of light that's going to change frequencies through mantras now when you have a blazar a blazar is a powerful blast of light, supermassive black hole type blast of, of light that's pointing directly at its observer, which is Earth. Now, if a blazar starts heading towards Earth, it'll change its light from red to blue. And it'll it'll be very uh, you know, very visible and it'll Well it's just a good old Doppler shift. The stuff coming at you at close to the speed yeah. of light is blue shifted. The stuff yes. going away is red shifted. So imagine if that blue star Kachina is uh revealing itself because it's changing to blue light, revealing its mask, and it's now headed towards Earth to, to bring World War Three. <laughs> I wouldn't take that step because I think the idea of World War Three is on basically human frailty. Are we being pushed? Is Putin being pushed? Are others being pushed to do the unthinkable? But in the sky, in the cosmos, in our section of the galaxy – if such an event were to become visible, yeah, like simultaneously, we're we're back to serendipity, the princes of serendip. In other words, a sign in the heavens indicating a a fatal problem with consciousness, not in the heavens but here on Earth. See, you can't know your enemy unless you know your enemy. That's true. What if our enemy is not just restricted to human beings being dumb and stupid? What if there is a higher dimensional beast, an enemy, seeking to destroy by allowing others to come through in the destruction process? In other words, that's where I think our real problem is. 
things on earth are being guided not just by earthbound beings, but yeah. by in very malevolent forces that are using human frailty to try to create an environment to their liking. And unless you understand it, there's zero defense. You got to know your enemy before you can defend against your enemy. That's true. Would you would you consider like DNA a sort of cosmic currency in a way? Well, remember what DNA is. It's two strands of molecules in 3D in a spiral vortex. Mm, yep. And it's the, remember the wire, the copper wire. You twist it, you yep. create a vorticular field. It's the vorticity that is the gate between dimensions. Yeah, that's incredible. It's incredible. Yeah, and you're right, right down from the candle flame. I've done experiments with the copper copper tensor rings around the candle flames and taking pictures and you can literally see uh like the plasma tubes, like plasma choke the choke ring and the flip ring that they, they that they have. Wait, wait, in. you got these pictures and you didn't post yeah. them tonight? I, I I I do yes, I did I did send them to uh to uh Keith. I'm not sure if he put them up. Or not. Well, we need to do that for for Club nineteen point five. Yeah, we'll we'll definitely do it next time for sure. Well, that's amazing. Yes, that's amazing. Because I didn't know about that work. I didn't know you'd done that. Yeah, yeah, I have it. I have it. Uh, you, yeah, you have them right there. You have them in Skype somewhere. Keep okay. Them. Okay. So let's go back to four thirty two, because that is a frequency which is it's literally recorded indelibly in the layout of the Giza Plateau. You know that, right? Yeah. And all yeah. kinds of other sacred sites. It's embedded in the geometry of the stones by ancients who shouldn't have known a damn thing about this stuff. So what yeah. have your technologies done? And do you have any examples of people who were in dire straits, who used your technology, and who got better? Yeah, I mean, uh, there's there's well, talk about that. Talk about some all sorts of testimonials about that. I mean, so when you use that frequency, it's sort of like uh, like you said, it, it it's really good for helping with the gut as well, and and it help it helps you remove things from your biofield. I, I really feel that. And, so and start, start you, at square one. When someone comes to you and says, "I got a problem," you look yeah. at your panoply of technologies. You decide this is appropriate. What do they do with it? What do you make for them, and what do they do with it that results in a positive change? Well, first of all, the harmonizers are the best. If someone's trying to change the atmosphere, we have What's these harmonizers. It's basically modeled after like a supernova Taurus explosion, hmm. right? It, it looks it's it's modeled after the Taurus the Taurus field, right. and basically I use eight Taurus rings to form. A Taurus, a Taurus for you it, folks that are not geometrically inclined is a stubby donut. Yeah, it's like a, a it's like that donut that's made out of eight Taurus uh, eight um, tensor rings, and then in the middle of it, in the center of the Taurus, uh, where is the hole an is, coil. Yeah, uh, down the middle of it is a coil in the middle. Copper coil. So uh, let me let me take a picture and show you on Skype real quick so you can understand. Well, but everybody can't see Skype, so we got to put this in your in your area after the show. Yeah, you, just so you can see it for a second. Well, I know like what they look I'm like. You know, I've, I've I've seen them. It's, it's our audience. Yeah. So the har the harmonizer is like um, 
it, it, it helps you. It could be for even a greenhouse, your house, your office. It'll help you bring a balance and pull the negative energies, the negative bacteria, the EMF, all that. It'll help you pull that into the bottom and pump out a new positive explosion of electrons. Like when when you're using the copper, it's like giving you an explosion of of brand new electrons, you know, brand new fresh positive positive energy that's all over. Like the the the, the rings, if you're using 432 hertz and copper rings, I mean that's a powerful combination of. Connecting. So is this a passive thing, or is it an active machine that you put electricity into, or? audio frequencies or whatever to get 432. Oh, I use a a frequency generator. Okay, so it's an electromagnetic pulse field. It's a frequency generator. You actually plug in. Yep. You plug in, and then you put – I put cables to the actual copper. Okay. And do you – So I have 432 hertz running right into the copper itself. So you make them in different sizes? Yeah, all different sizes. I have some huge rings, some small rings, pendant rings. So the huge ones uh, would be like for a house or an, an environment, and the yeah, smaller yeah. ones are personal? Yeah, I even have the double wraps where you double wrap, you do the royal cubit, and then you double wrap it again with the royal cubit, double wrapped harmonizers. Yeah, but not many, people have, not many people have a frequency generator in their basement. So yeah, how do you, you can, energize it for the, quote, average you, buyer? You can buy uh, – relatively cheap small frequency generators sometimes I mean, they might be harder to find out but a couple of years ago you can get them for under two hundred dollars so you don't make a coil system that's got it kind of built in where you flip a switch and because of the circuitry it just automatically generates a 432 frequency well i think copper alone might generate a frequency like that itself i don't know i've never been able to I have a scientific experiment where you're generating the actual f- frequency that the copper instrument is generating by itself. I, you know, so I don't know about that, but it does definitely generate a, generate a higher harmonic frequency than what we're when we're currently vibrating at for sure. You know, what is the the human the human when the human brain says to get to a, a, a meditative state? What is it? Eight hertz? Something say? like that. Yeah. Right. So like it's definitely it's definitely more powerful than you could feel it. Like when you first start using the copper tools, some of them you some people don't feel energy. Because I've met people that they just don't feel energy. They're the kind of people that can feel energy. I'm one of those. Yeah. I am I am I am so left brained now I don't feel it. Yeah. But I I see it in the mathematics. Yeah. I know it's there. Yeah, you know it's there, but some people, they'll actually feel it nipping in their fingers when they first touch the copper tensor instruments. And then once you, once you, your body gets used to it, you don't feel that, 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 that feeling anymore when you first touch it. It's not that it's not powerful anymore. It's your body adjusts to it. But when you use those, I guarantee you, even people that don't feel energy, some of these double wrap ones, even the people that don't feel energy are telling me, wow, well, this, I actually this is my next feel question. something with if, this. If, you're, if you take a, a patient – or a client or whatever you call them who does not feel this stuff and you expose them to this field in the right frequency range, do they develop an acuity, a sensitivity to where you can turn a non-connected person into a connected person? Oh yeah. My, my, my buddy, Steve, um, uh, one wow. time, you know, he, he doesn't feel energy at all really like that. And, uh, I gave, 
sort of I, I I gave him a sweep sort of with the the copper tool that I have the copper, and then I, I let him sit with the a large copper ring over his belly because he had a bad gut he has bad gut issues, hmm. and after about an hour. I mean, Richard, he literally had to run to the bathroom. And <laughs> yeah, like he got rid of a lot, a lot. I mean, it, it poured out. So like it, it, it Well, can see, help some plant. people, they don't know that when this is applied to people, the reaction they have may seem negative, but it's getting rid of negative junk. So it's really a positive. But for him, it was obviously a very negative experience yeah i've had even people that put them around their feet you know develop little blisters on their feet afterwards because it's actually pulling stuff out of your feet oh my you know yeah it's pulling stuff out of you and uh, it's 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 really incredible. so where would you recommend people start what where would you say okay if, if you think this is all crap you know it's only 595 whatever start with this see some results and then move on if you're so inclined. Where would you have them yeah. start? Well, if they don't want to start with the tensor tools, you could start with just basic uh, copper coil wrapped around a crystal. You know, I, I, I sell things that are $15 that are copper coils around crystals. You could start with something basic like that. You know, I'll even, if someone doesn't have money and they can't afford something, I'll send them a gift, contact me. You know, and if you if you really want to work with something like this and you can't afford it, I will send you a free gift. I'll send you a pendant. But it, it's 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 crucial that people work with 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 copper nowadays just to protect themselves from the electromagnetic copper tensor, especially from the electromagnetic and the EMF. Especially if you start combining the copper with shungite and and things like that, the elite noble shungite. Wait, I mean, wait, you have is all that the, is, is is that a mineral? Yeah, shungite is actually uh, from from Russia. It's harder to get nowadays, but it, it almost looks like charcoal. It's uh, it's black, but the really high quality shungite you can actually put in water and ingest it, and it's really incredible. It's spelled S H U N G I T E. And what's the one it made you want to get? You know the chemistry of it? Yeah, it's carbon sixty, almost ninety eight percent. Oh my God! It's it's buckyballs. Yeah, it's Buckyball, C60. It's well, you almost... know that you can make it yourself. Uh, Buckyballs are prolific in, guess where, candle flames. Yeah, my, my buddy, uh, Ken, his name's Ken Schwartz. I don't know if you know him. You might be able to have him on the show anytime. He's a guest. Of, there, he, he makes a product called C60 Purple Power, hmm. and it's it's really, really special. He'll send you a bottle, I mean, yeah, for sure. Uh, his name's and, Ken Schwartz. And, and, and what's it supposed to do? It helps you clean out your body, and, 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 and it it makes you healthy. It helps you get healthy, man. It helps your gut, everything. Well, in other words, it, re, your, it retunes you to the natural frequency of a hyperdimensional connection, which is 432. By the way, do you know how big the sun is? How, like the size of it? Yeah. Uh, what is it? Uh, 10, um I don't know. Tell me the exact dimension. Four hundred and thirty-two thousand miles in radius. That's right. I have that written down. You're right. Remember, remember, our model is the solar system was hyperdimensionally retuned, redesigned, rebuilt for us, and something intervened and tried to smash the nursery. That's the big war. Hey, obviously we're going to have to continue this conversation because we're literally at the at the top of the hour, 
and the show is ending. Hey, Ra, I really want to thank you. This has been a very insightful, very amazing evening. Totally serendipitous. Chandra, are you listening? So we'll rebook Chandra and find out what went wrong. But in, I think you got an incredibly serendipitous window on hyperdimensional physics. It's samples, sizes, examples, and applications all in one evening. So until next Saturday, where we have a stunning, absolutely mind-blowing breakthrough regarding the moon, you do not want to miss next Saturday night, which is the 23rd, I think. So until then, third star on the left, straight on till morning. Good night, everyone. <laughs>